Escape from Plan A. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Welcome to Escape from Plan A. This is uh, Tina and Jess. Jess, say hi. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's been a while since you and I have recorded one of these, though. We've been in constant contact, uh, just as usual, talking about stuff. And uh, I think it was overdue. I think it's overdue for us to uh, talk about. Um, I guess the thing is, like, we trade in very vague notions sometimes, you and I, like, or broad notions. Like, not vague, but, like, broad. And mm-hmm. it's hard to pin it down into a specific topic for a pod. But I feel like I want to try here with this notion. I Because you, you – know, let me let you run with it for a while because – you had brought this up earlier saying that you really need, think that there needs to be a rethinking or a reckoning or a, a, a sort of moment of honesty when it comes to immigration and immigrants and why we came here and the sort of like guilt that we feel or or debt or obligation that we feel for having let let into this dream world uh, called America, all that. I think you've called that saying that it's time for a rethink. And I wanted to connect and say and and, and say, okay, let, let's let's go through it. Like, what triggered you? What are you saying, and what what triggered it? I guess what triggered it was uh, um, actually starting to read more crit- like Asian American writing a little bit more critically, and Asian American writing like contemporaneous to the current day. So, like within the last, last like let's say ten to twenty years, um, and this is roughly this roughly corn coincides with the coming of age of the second generation post uh, 1965 Immigration Act, which I, which uh, basically paved the way for most of us here, most Asian Americans here, to start their history as Americans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the persistent thing that I kept seeing is this, uh, is this, uh, and it's so, it's, it's so pervasive. It's in every single piece that I, I read during that time period. Um, the sense of guilt that pervades the writing. So it, it, it suffused, it's never about this guilt, but it just suffuses the, 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 uh, the narrative creation around whatever topic it is that this uh, author or content creator is creating. And is it guilt, usually by the second generation? It's usually like the by writer's the second, the second generation. generation. Yeah. Um, okay. So you Ch- know, child of immigrants, child of immigrants. So, uh, 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 Americans by birth or by naturalization at a very young age, basically just Americans um, grappling with some issues that they are facing in their Asian American lives, uh, and then and you can see the thought process where it's a, it's, an, it's a public it's a public statement of an internal process, right? To kind of make some sense of some struggle of their uh, some conflict that they're feeling. And inevitably, you know, uh, and it's it's instinct to start thinking backwards, right? To trace whatever might have happened in the past to to lead to this. And the thing that everyone hones in on is this uh, is the fact of their parents' immigration. This is our creation story um, as as Americans. Um, and there's an immense amount of guilt that I was feeling in this. Um, that their their struggles right now. Uh, are diminished, say, in comparison to the incomparable uh, trauma of their parents having to uproot themselves, uproot their lives, um, and restart 
here in America. And so the guilt is, you know, making uh, making that sacrifice, which is always framed as noble in these circumstances, um, a noble sacrifice framed as, uh, you know, seeking freedom, seeking material benefits for uh, not just not just themselves, but mostly for their progeny, their posterity. Um, and and like carrying that as kind of a weight, like okay, given that my parents did all of this for me, uh, and I was given so much, uh, oh my God, like am I selfish for feeling uh, for feeling dissatisfied or angry with my lot in life? Am I am I just a loser because I haven't accomplished everything that I feel like I should have accomplished, given how much people have sacrificed on my behalf? Um, do you, I mean, I'm sure you, you see that, right? It, it, it makes me think of you're, when you're saying this, it makes me think of this, um, commercial that aired for a little bit by Google and it was actually a really effective commercial. Like a lot of this I think is done actually pretty well. And it, 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 it definitely is emotionally resonant. There was a, a it was a really well done commercial where all it was, was the Google homepage, like the search engine, the search okay. bar. And it was just apparently uh, an immigrant woman, uh, I believe, uh, Asian for sure, um, go- doing searches that were showed or revealed uh, her struggles as like a single mother or, or, as, or maybe perhaps just a mother, I forget, raising a daughter. And it was like, you know, um, Googling stuff about, uh, you know, um, uh, finding the best school districts, uh, you know, how to like do costumes, you know, for the school play, uh, researching, you know, you know, getting a second job, researching, moving to a better neighborhood, researching colleges and all this stuff. And after, after one of the final searches, which I think is like, you know, how to deal with saying goodbye to your kid as she moves to college, she, she finally Googled, you know, vacations. Right. So like after after all this, she goes and Google's like, I need to take do something for myself. It was a very I think maybe that's kind of what you're going, because I think like that was sort of showing that, you know, this whoever her child is really owes this woman a lot because this woman went through hell to, you know, to to um, uh, to raise her. Uh, And it was really effective, I thought. But there Mm -hmm. was it was traded heavily in guilt and notions of guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see it particularly poignant, uh, especially when we're talking about, you know, tie, not uh, t- zooming out from just um, like second generation Asian American issues and tying it more closely to broader social issues. Um, we're talking about, you know, roughly millennials or young Gen Xers at this point um, who aren't exempt from the trends in society that we're seeing now, right? So stagnant wages. Um, not being able to meet the same milestones at the same ages that our parents and grandparents or whatever the analog is for uh, Americans who have had longer histories in the country. Um, so not being able to hit those milestones, uh, stag- you know, general sense of stagnation, uh, frustration, uh, lack of fulfillment, alienation, all of that. Um, but in, in Asian American immigrant writing, and I see this in other immigrant groups too, but uh, that's not that I can't speak necessarily for that. Um, at least for mm-hmm. the, I don't think we're unique in this. In other words, um, but this I'll is speak this with- is th- this is a conversation that I have with my friends regularly. Like they'll say stuff like that, like mm-hmm. oh, imagine you know they'll say like imagine if I 
I just imagine what it would be like if I uprooted and left for another country where I didn't even speak the language at age 26, you know, and just raised the family there. You know, this that's basically what my parents did is what they'll say. And it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty common thought, I think. Uh-huh. It must be because you're saying you're reading it and I've heard it from my friends. They say it like, you know, it's it seems to be this thought that a lot of people have independently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I understand. I identify with that a lot. I mean, I think about that constantly myself, you know, like, yeah. you know, and this is this is just what what globalization means. Um, I don't necessarily. But you're, you're saying that you see a, you, you perhaps see a fallacy in this. I do, because what we're doing, we take all of that. So we see the generational effects, which are heavily documented. If you're reading, um, if you're reading stuff in the papers about, uh, if you're just aware, you know exactly what's going on. We're not exactly exempt from that. But what I see missing in the writing or the analysis that comes out of it, uh, there is very little critique of that. And it always goes back to um, this, the, trades in this notion of guilt, that despite all of these, we were given so much in comparison. Um, we kind of owe it to not just ourselves, but to this, uh, to our parents, for all the pain and suffering they went to, to, uh, to make, to still make a go of this, to still succeed. We are extra losers if we don't overcome this. Mm. Uh, and I see it as having a paralyzing effect. On the uh, second generation. On the second yeah. generation, a severe paralyzing effect, uh, and it's and take and so uniform. It's uncanny. It's uh, uh, I think this is just the human instinct for a creation myth uh, rearing its head. Uh, it's just an instinct. I can't call. I mean, everyone does this. Um, I'm recently going through, you know, like uh, the history of Rome, and uh, I mean, you you know me. This is I, I love this shit, but. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it just it just comes up. It's um and it's it's not limited to just Rome or anything. It's just anytime a new group of people come, to, it just happens to be that Rome is one of the best documented cases of this. Uh, when people come together, um, and try to form a cohesive uh, something, make a go of it in a brand new situation, the instinct is always to kind of backfill a story that lends a bit of nobility, lends a bit of uh, suffering and credibility. Suffering is actually key t- to this. To lend it that psychological weight and value uh as a as a uh as a burden a shared burden that we can all use as a touchstone uh to come together to progress into the future um so but it's so so the idea of the noble the noble sacrifice self-sacrificing immigrant uh that is our that is our founding generation that has taken on to me the nature of a myth we don't challenge it at all it's always just accepted. We read a piece. Um, it's, I mean, it's tropey. We laugh it off as a trope, but I think there's a lot, there's, it's, it's a little subtler than that. I mean, it's a trope because it's just so readily um, identifiable uh, as, a, as a need we share as relative newcomers to this brand new place. Um, the, the idea of the, the, the struggling, suffering immigrant uh, is just central to how we have to understand ourselves as a group in this country. And I think it's, uh, while I understand the need for it, I think it's, it's we, why can't we challenge that? I think we should. If well, we're well, well I wonder, that. well, I guess the question is, why would we challenge it? Huh? Like, what are the reasons for challenging it? Because I feel like in a way, it's, it's a symbiotic thing where it's like, you know, 
we valorize ourselves we we sort of put our you know we we pay we put attention a positive attention on ourselves and you know we we end up becoming uh I think our status becomes enhanced and I think in a way we sort of enhance the status of America to an extent, because I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, and, and, and this was true of like people like Milton Friedman, where when, when confronted with any sort of like, you know, challenge to the notion of like American uh, political economy or American ideologies, the standard is like, well, then why does everyone want to come here? And it's, it's the same in, that's the inverse of like when anyone who's not white can, uh, uh, complains about America, they're like, well, well, then why do you stay? Why don't you just leave? Right. It's, you know, when I say, I think when people say, you know, I think the go back to China thing or whatever is a derivative out of this dynamic, which is to say America is great. And the proof the incontrovertible proof is that you want to be here. If you didn't, if, if America was, was shit, why would you bother coming? You know? So I think, I I think think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I think it changed because there's a kernel of truth to that. Why are we here? If it wasn't somehow better in some dimensions, but we don't, but a, we don't challenge, we don't actually ask that question. What is it that we can, we always waffle at that. Uh, We always waffle at, you know, in actually what, what dimension, brought us here to begin with. Uh, we always need to tie it to some ideological, and this point's mythological, I think. And why yeah. won't we question it? Because it serves our interests for the moment. It really does. Um, look at how much second generation or you know, children, p- people who have close ties to some recent history of immigration, look how much they can get away with by relying on that as a kind of, as to launder their ambitions. We see this happening with, uh, say, Andrew Yang is a, is a good example of this, right? Oh my, Talking yeah. about his father growing up in a peanut farm. Like, if we have, like, if we have this, uh, idea, this noble sacrifice in our history, we can claim almost anything. Um, you, you, can, you know what's interesting when you say that is um, you should go back, because I, I, I went back and watched it, and I was surprised at what I saw. If you go back to 2004... Uh, I believe it was 2004. Yeah. When um, uh, Barack Obama uh, made his big debut at the DNC convention in 2004, he was the keynote speaker, blew everyone away. Right. That was when he yeah. when Obama landed on the scene. Yeah. No, I remember. If you go back I and watch was. that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember watching it. I, yeah. I, I was blown away by it. But, you know, a lot of people, I forgot the content of that speech because it's not. It's a it's a speech that's full of like bromides you know it's it's not a particularly heavy hitting speech but it sounds great and i re- like i rewatched it and i realized that obama landed in our national conscience not as a black man but as an immigrant mm-hmm. he landed in our conscience i think you know how like everyone was saying like remarking about how a man with a middle name hussein mm-hmm. right and they con- he constantly stressed in 2004 that he came from his father came from Africa uh-huh. and that he wasn't basically an immigrant and he is not what you would consider, um, you know, a typical American, right? Yeah. Like his speech was very, and I think that's why it connected with me a lot because he was reviving 
or he was using what you're talking about, this this sort of mythos of the noble immigrant. And I was connecting with it, but he was a black guy. So he, I, I feel like people kind of forgot because he later became more black identified, at least in the public conscience. Mm-hmm. He became a black, the black president. But I think when he landed in 2004, if you listen to what he was saying, he really very much landed as sort of the brown immigrant president. That's kind of that, true. That, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of where yeah. he was landing with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, so. and, well, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of pressure to demonize immigration as well. Uh, I think this is more, uh, this is more focused, especially right now on uh, like Hispanic immigrants, uh, immigrant, immigrants of uh, uh, immigrants from like Central and South America. Uh, but I mean, this has to be, but we've seen this all the way back to like the yellow peril days, right? In the Chinese Exclusion Act, there has been a fear of non-white immigrants from the very get-go, right? So there is yeah. pressure to kind of, to ennoble uh, that process, right? You want to make it sound ideological and idealistic, in fact, um, to ennoble the, the act of moving from uh, this, this place that we like to conveniently um, call, you know, backwards or in, backwards in some ways, dirty, savage, whatever, and then coming over here and being, and being wowed. Um, just awed mm-hmm. by the sheer superiority. We're here to flatter the ego, the collective consciousness of America. That's our purpose here. How we benefit from that, as long as we can prop that up, um, we can get away with untold numbers of, uh, untold amounts of immorality, I'd say, or disconnectedness from society. As much as we complain, oh, we're kind of shut out, we're left out. Uh, I think we're pretty canny about this. Uh, we benefit a lot from this. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm? Maybe this is a little vague, but um, but it's. You're, I mean, you're saying that immigrants come with um, a sense of of what they're going to get out of it too. Yeah, I think there is. Yeah, I, I mean, but that that makes be. sense, right? Yeah. I mean, but, but well, I mean, why else would they come? And this process gets completely by the by the second generation, at least in the in the in the writing that I've seen. Uh, this mm-hmm. this gets kind of bleached out. So it it almost is a almost a clean slate creation myth uh, mm-hmm. because when they're talking about the noble immigrant, there is no real tie to the motherland embedded in that. It's this noble immigrant with a capitalized noble immigrant springing up de novo on American soil, and create that's and that's the that's the creation story. Mm-hmm. Like it seriously, it it seriously lines up exactly with how creation myths have to operate for legitimacy yeah. in in a consciousness. Uh, the mm-hmm. immigrant is not is not from China. We, I mean, we 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 talk about that, of course, but more. But then we talk about it in different ways. We talk about it as an aesthetic, uh, and this is a thing that we've criticized piecemeal. I feel like we've been criticizing these things piecemeal uh, from the get go in Plan A. But the thing that connects it all together is why we have to talk about these things the way we do. And it's that we need that creation story. We need that noble story to justify our place here and to uh, validate how we collectively choose our place in society now. Um, yeah. You you see this on – I remember there's uh, – I would see this on Reddit because Reddit is generally like a pretty um, – white and racist place i would say but there was an exception which is that i forgot what subreddit was but it was like a place where like 
and it, it wasn't always in the subreddits. You would sometimes see these comments peppered into like other threads. And it would be someone who said, oh, hey, guess what? Today I, I finally was naturalized as an American citizen. And they post a picture of their naturalization ceremony and stuff. And those that's almost universally applauded on Reddit. It's an exception yeah. to the it's a big exception to the general rule of casual racism all the time. But uh, whenever someone is like, oh, I've naturalized, I'm, I'm proud of being American. People get, you know, like pretty excited about that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people was like, hell yeah, you know, and then and then suddenly everyone's, uh, you know, totally cosmopolitan. They're like, hell yeah, that's America right there, you know. Um, oh god. Yeah, I, I, I think especially yeah. in modern times, I'd say like, yes, there's an anti-immigrant. There definitely is anti-immigrant sentiment in America, but there also is, uh, which isn't, which you see all the time, uh, is um, is a is a real is a real, you know, yeah, like a sanctity to it and uh, a, a heroism uh, to deciding to become an American. Yeah. You know, legally. Yeah. Uh, it, and included in that, of course, is the denunciation of where you, you came from and you disavow all foreign princes and, and things, what all the, the, the weird shit that you got to say. Um, I really in should say- ceremony. I really should should take a look at that citizenship test. I'm not sure I would pass. I'm really not <laughs> yeah. sure. I remember I had a British I had a British friend who naturalized, of oh, course, yeah. Yeah, a white British guy, and he uh, he 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 went to the naturalization ceremony and came back to work. And of, of course, you know uh, when he came to work that day and he told everyone who naturalized, everyone was super excited and everyone's like, "Congratulations, America!" And uh, I'm, I'm just and he said it like, was why. Yeah, well, he got married, the, you know. I don't what know. What is the point? Okay, you're British and you naturalized to be... Okay, I, I don't... Okay, fuck it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Uh, and he he said that it was... Yeah, I remember he, him saying, like, it was really weird because I had to, like, disavow allegiance to all foreign princes. He's like, why a prince? Why not the king? I don't know. Oh, that, um, was, that was the colloquial... That was shorthand for the royal class. Not all right, of them right. were kings, but they were the princely class. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, and, and a lot of Americans like to point out, including white Americans, like to point out that they're immigrants. They like to point out that my grandparents were immigrants, you know, or... Um, it's a strategic you know. identity. Uh, it's, it's a very mm. strategic one uh, yeah. that you can deploy as needed. Um, because again, I mean, mm. and you pointed this, this out in the previous pod... Uh, with Emily, and I think that there's a lot of truth to this. It, America's just a young country, uh, violently formed, and it's a complete accident of history that it ended up on top of the global order. It required a flattening of it basically everywhere else. It, it wasn't some, uh, I don't like uh, necessarily the leftist framing of America's rise, because it's framed as an, it's, it, it's not to say that they're wrong, uh, right? But America is positioned as, you know, the global hegemon, an empire with imperial intent and interests and behaves as such. Um, and in the but how it got to that point, I think, is a little underdeveloped in, in awareness. Um, it was an accident of history that the U.S. ended up on top. And I think a lot of the, the anxiety I mean, in a global was, perspective, in the global perspective. Yeah, I mean, and, I think the leftists are absolutely correct in the sense that it was a settler colonial project from the beginning. Yeah. And it was, you know, but and, and 
and, but there's and, a, you know with their with the focus on the genocide and the slavery taking place within the borders but yeah i mean you're saying like world war ii and and the specific positioning of america's rise to global hegemon uh post-world war ii was a yeah. bit of an accident yeah yeah and, and it's happened in a very short period of time so as we revere the constitution and the founding fathers and how we talk about those that's also a creation myth uh, that we're that we're actively participating in, and we get to see it relatively close to the actual time that it was written. And we already see how much distortion that has uh, that has seen in the ensuing like two centuries, barely. Uh, but when the founding fathers wrote that shit, they didn't really know that anything west of the Ohio River existed. You know what I mean? And that was just two hundred years ago. Um, and its place at the top of the global order happened because. Basically, every other continent got blown to bits um, yeah. prior to that. Um, <clears throat> it certainly ran away with it, but it's a very young country. Uh, and I, it does not have a collective sense of uh, culture. It does not have a collective sense of itself as a people. People blame like multiculturalism as tearing American culture apart or fracturing it. No, we just didn't have a cohesive one to begin with. It's a massive country. Uh, that had an, a very violent, very abrupt rise to the top at, without the backing, the, the social and cultural maturity to process that and, and be able to absorb that. This, is, this just has not happened in human history ever. I think it's, that it's rather underappreciated. Like in the time of Roman, the, like the, the, even... Though I would say, I mean, I would say that in a way America was uniquely positioned to become the global hegemon because in a way... Uh, our history really was uh, it, it really was dominated by or how do I put this American I, American I, the Amer America was very much uh, a place without a dominant um, cultural identity prior to World War II as well it was you know dealing with how do I? How do we run a run a nation? How do we create a state uh, where you know we have <clears throat> um, people from Italy and Ireland and Germany pouring in through Ellis Island, you know, nonstop, and they're bringing with them all their German and Italian and Irish ways and and etc. And on top of that, we have you know. Uh, black people really only like maybe one or half a generation removed from slavery moving into the North and you have all the, you know, like in a way America was like designed to, or had already had a lot of practice like dealing with, you know, just maintaining uh, order within a pluralism like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel yeah. like I and I and I think that that was the idea of America was this sort of like liberal I think they call it liberal hegemony is the idea that American the American empire is not built on it's not like the British where everyone must recognize the British crown and and British customs and aspire to Britishness but that America was sort of like a liberal like Hey, just forget all of your old traditions, you know, be American. Don't worry about your traditions. Drop them. Become, you know, do whatever the fuck you want to do. Uh, 
I mean, that is I think that was the story. Idea. I think there is there is an allure to that. Um, I yeah, think that sure. this is what it, I mean. America is a class experiment, right? Um, like one thing we don't hear talked about right now is legitimacy of of rule as coming from bloodline. We talk about it as race now. We talk about it in terms of class. But I think one thing that America did actually was actually successful in is uh, this is a country built by basically the castoffs of every other country out there. Right. If you were here in America, chances are you you weren't coming from the princely class back home. Right. Right. And so this is so, you know, in an era when legitimacy and the right to rule uh, and the social order was determined by birth. This is actually a very radical, uh, a, a really a radical revision of that. It's a classic. It's saying I, I don't think anyone after after the American era could actually credibly say, no, actually, there is a there is a there is some profound value in bloodline that carries material worth and value that uh, we should run a society on. Um, America is saying no matter you could be a farmer's son, you still could be you still have what it you still could have what it takes to provide uh, to provide uh, services and skills to the country that that uh, benefit you and uh, you should be rewarded by society accordingly not according to who your dad was um right. i don't know where exactly i'm going i don't know exactly how i'm tying this to uh the thankful immigrant okay how this ties to i think uh, our awkwardness is this sense of that that sense of openness is out there and so it's a trap right it's the American promise is if you work, this is, so what I'm talking about here is meritocracy, right? The idea that uh, if you just work hard and you have the skills, uh, with a little bit of luck, you too could sit at the top of the, uh, at the totem, uh, the totem pole. Where we fit into as uh, non-white uh, immigrants and children and immigrants is uh, extra frustration that that promise does not necessarily extend to us, despite our parents having bought into it. But we don't, ever challenge our parents for it we don't do you, do you ever see that i never you mean do. for coming here in the first place for coming here in the first place <laughs> you see it in private i don't you know see if it you private. Ever see but, but that. it's like oh my parents sacrificed so much uh to come here uh i really need to figure out something you know to do with that i really hate that you know i got bullied over my lunches or some shit um but you don't really see that challenged at a critical uh, or at any kind of public level. And this is why I say this is a creation myth. We cannot challenge the creation myth. And I say we can uh, because we're just one generation out. Our parents, you, mm-hmm. can still, you can still right now pick up the phone and ask your parents, you know, why exactly did you come here? I think the answers are, would be more uh, surprising to a lot of people. Uh, I know when I first asked my parents, you know, I and this isn't. I never asked this in high school, but it, it was after. Uh, oh yeah, it was after uh, taking and flunking an Asian American studies class in college. You flunked Asian American studies? I really did. Yeah. It, okay. It wasn't, <laughs> okay. It, it's okay. Look. Okay. <laughs> we are recording, so I guess I need to explain myself a little bit. A. <laughs> uh. Um, so I took it, I, I didn't take it at my school, so it didn't show up, so I was already kind of like, eh, uh, like wasn't taking it that seriously. Where'd you um, go, across the yard to Harvard? I did, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> I uh-huh. have a transcript over there, and it doesn't look pretty. Um, uh-huh. 
and uh, I just I, I just didn't like the class like none of the people I I really couldn't I, like I just really didn't like the it was a lot of like it just felt like bad group therapy uh-huh um bad like, mojo really, going yeah just really like just combing through like immigrant trauma to digging through but then that that relentless like pressure to look inwards like where in you was that like let's root out the poison in you to be cleansed i just didn't like that um i didn't have any like pre- preparation to deal with to understand that, that doesn't yeah, sound like, like your uh that's not your bag yeah like, people, like i'm not used to like walking into class and people asking me like so how's your relationship with your mother like uh, yeah. are you my ther- therapist like what the hell um yeah. and so the, so i just lost interest in that class and then uh, sh- uh like shit got busy with my real class load uh, i just forgot to drop it so mm. that's that's the story there but it is fun to say i flunked an asian american studies class at harvard yeah. <laughs> um but where was i going with that um where was i going with that uh where were we? i think we were <clears throat> i think we were just kind of going around this notion of like whether people can actually challenge their parents for like coming here <laughs> oh yeah yeah okay so it was like th- thanksgiving like when i went back Excuse i just me. asked my mom uh, okay so like okay, we never talked about this why did you guys come here we're the only ones uh like my mom and my dad are the only ones in their families to have come here uh to and, and stayed here several members have gotten some parts of their education here but they all left and went back. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were the only ones to stay. Um, and I was like getting ready. It was like, like, okay, this is going to be like an emotional thing. It's going to be real and I'm going get, to get comfortable. And my mom's like, oh, um, like UCLA gave my dad and I, like your dad and I a really good deal. Uh, they, like they would pay our way. We we're getting like seriously generous, like um, packages to come study here uh, and to teach for a while after that. Uh, mm. And, you know, and some family drama was going down. So we just didn't leave for a while. And then we were like, California is pretty nice. So we just stayed. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. are you like, that's it? Yeah. Like, that's fucking it? Yeah. That, why... That's basically what my dad, my dad told me the same thing. He's, it was a similar thing. He, he was in Utah studying for grad school uh, with a full intention. Uh, my sister had already been born. My, my mother was back in Taiwan full intention for him to go back but then he recall i think he was flirting with the idea of staying because uh he just loves open spaces like he he has he's a bit of a not an agoraphobe but a misanthrope that <laughs> he doesn't mm, like yeah. people and um he saw that a, a gasoline tanker truck had connected itself to the to some sort of reservoir but it was pumping milk and my dad was like, Jesus, is this truck full of milk? And the guy was like, yeah, we're just... And they just fill a milk tank in, at the school cafeteria <laughs> with, with a gasoline truck. And my dad was like, we, 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 we got to come here. I mean, this is... There's like, literally I, milk flowing out of a hose. You know, like, you know, that's, that's, that's you know, that's the reasons. You know, it's like yeah. milk in a hose. There's yeah. milk in a hose. That's... Uh, and I mean, so. because of this class, like being being like primed for this, uh, this like mm-hmm. really dramatic story of struggle and travail. And I'm not discounting. I, I, I like my, my my parents were fortunate to have come from well-to-do families. Um, and again, I mean, they came here on a student on student visas, very generously paid. 
uh, able to settle into, you know, high profile, like, like good work. Um, so it was a comfortable life. So I'm not discounting anyone with a different story. Um, but I was, ex but being primed for this, like this class just made me, put me in this headspace. Like there is this like much grander, uh, like narrative that I am a part of that I simply had not been tuned into. Um, and then when I like actually tried to broach this topic with my parents, expecting some kind of like, like basically a biblical story. This is like my family's Genesis, right? Book of Genesis. Mm. And my parents are like, uh, yeah, like the weather in LA was pretty nice. And you know, like, you're, I was having, I was having some beef <laughs> yeah. with your aunt and I just didn't want to go back. And then like, I don't know, we just had to Yeah, that's the other here. part. There's a lot of personal shit in it is like, yeah, uh, I want to so get away from your father-in-law, from, from your, your father's father. He's a yeah. real pain in the ass. Uh, I had a friend who was here already. I liked hanging out with her. So, you know, and then I found a job. Yeah. I, I mean, it was very much like that stuff that yeah, and it, like, ended up yeah. staying. And she had, and I feel like I got, I got like, I was like, really? This is why I speak a different language from my cousins, all of them. Mm -hmm. This is why I have a different, mm -hmm. this is why I'm like, I'm an American because you liked the weather in LA. And, and like, I could see like she was also struggling a little bit to like, like, Okay, I got I got a juice that's a little bit more for her. It's like, well, you know, your dad really liked like we went to Las Vegas, see, for our anniversary, and your dad was like blown away by the buffets. Mm -hmm. She literally used Las Vegas buffets as uh, one of the reasons why I am an American citizen, why she is an American citizen. The buffet. The buffet. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like. I, I can actually understand that. He, my dad really likes beef. My dad really likes seafood. Yeah. So just walking. So, but where we, where we, let me ask you though, but where are we going with this? Like, what is it that about this that you want to, like, why do we want to challenge this? Why do we want to say that? Uh, and what are we saying replaces it? Right? Like, what is it about the, uh, um, the, the, the sort of pedestalizing of the immigrant that you think bothers that what is what about it bothers you you know uh, i just see it as a as a as a psychological trap like i see a lot of depression anxiety as a result of internal having internalized this narrative of struggle and and sacrifice on their behalf i mean look it's a it's a we just have to push back on this i mean i don't see what i i don't see why we can't challenge um immigrant narratives uh, that this is all for us kids or there is a grander purpose um i i don't see any need to continue with that uh, to take that beyond where it reasonably sits on an individual case-by-case -case basis i don't think this is a generation-wide narrative that we need to uphold uh so if, if i see a lot so i see a lot of people feeling guilty um things like like, look, it, it shows up in things like people talking about feeling guilty playing video games in school uh, and their parents will use that immigrant guilt on them uh, to be like, you have to go to a good school, you have to get a good job. This is why we came to this country for you. You have to so now you, it's your job to take to push this even further. You owe it um, to everyone involved. Um, I don't. I, oh, you're, so you're saying it, it might have a bad effect. I think it has on a bad effect. the second generation, like yeah. as an individual, it's not good to feel this way. It's not. Like, I, like I don't think that it is pressure. Yeah, mm. or to uh, and then to somehow feel and then to feel like um, this, what you have to do is somehow materially different than uh, what they did. 
So when mm -hmm. I bring up that my, you know, my parents decided to stay because they were given generous um, terms by UCLA to work, to study and work here, this is a very material reason to come here. Right? We never talk about this facet, right? Why did we come here? Well, 1965, the immigration, and like, let's talk about the 1965 Immigration Act here. Uh, why was that shit signed? Why was it, why was it created, right? When we as immigrants or children of immigrants talk about that, we talk about it as if it came out of the blue. Um, but there are very real reasons for this act to have been put in place at the time it was. Right? This is a, a young country on a very rapid rise with a severe shortage of skilled labor. Uh, and you know, uns and um, with uh, an additional goal, goal or at least a, a serious benefit of uh, draining the world of its talent and centering it here in the United States for use now and into the future, um, right? So there is a purpose for this. It's not. It was not. Uh, it's not an act of charity that 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 1965 uh, happened. It was it was because the country needed labor and our parents answered the call, right? Yeah, and I and I think that comes with uh, a certain mindset, and I find that immigrants are very very pro work people. Yeah. Immigrants love to talk about how hard they work. They love to talk about how anyone, if I could do it, anyone can do it. They they love saying that. Yeah, they love. And they love saying like, you know, I and, and, and personally, I think a lot of right wing, a lot of the future right wingers come out of the immigrants. Is I, my opinion. Uh, I'd say uh, a lot of conservatives. I think immigrants do come in by and large, um, at least the ones I'm familiar with. I'm talking like a Marco Rubio. Oh, yeah, you know I, I mean? can see that. I can see and that. I think, mm -hmm. And I think that um, and the conservatives, too. Yes, he's I would say he's a. Uh, He's a right winger, but I think well, that, uh -huh. like, in terms of like values and principles, I would say like conservatism yeah. kind of runs. I'm not talking about political affiliation necessarily; just talking about in terms of. The oh, values. I am. I'm. I, I grew up. You know, I didn't know this because my parents were pretty. I didn't know this, but my parents were abnormally far left compared to their peers mm. of you know Chinese immigrants from Taiwan. Uh -huh. But I later learned, like I was, I basically grew up surrounded by Reagan, by Reagan uh, uh, Republicans. Mm -hmm. They were all Republicans. <laughs> I didn't know this, but I was, it was, you know, my friend was like, "Dude, I think your parents were the odd ones out. I, everyone else was a Republican." Yeah, my parents. Like, Jesus. My par yeah, my parents were like, like peak, like ninety, like nineties Republicans. And I want to caveat this. Uh, I see a lot of narratives right now from second generation. Uh, I think they miss a lot of this nuance talking about, oh, my parents are, you know, why are immigrants so, uh, like, so conservative, so backward, so, uh, so, and it's, it's a little paternalistic talking about, you know, being brainwashed by republicanism. Uh, a, let's, let's be clear. I think, I think the re we all shifted very right of where we came from, of where things have been in the 90s, when our parents probably were the prime political influences in our lives. Um, if you were Republican back in the 90s, that has very little to do with being Republican today, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. You can't necessarily point to them having voted for, um, for Reagan as, uh, as, as the same thing as voting for Trump. I think a lot of people don't challenge their political beliefs as they get older enough. Oh, no. But, no. Yeah, no. They, they, they would be what you call today a never-Trumper. Yeah. A never-Trump uh, Republican. 
is, so think, is what they would be. Yeah. So I, w- they I all wouldn't hate Trump. like to clarify. Mm-hmm. You know, I would I I would like to push back on uh, a trope of second gen uh, thought on the first on the first generation that they are somehow unrepentant. You know, you know, uh, brainwashed Trump Republicans. I don't think that's the case. I think it right. is a logical. Pr- there was a time when when the principles and the politics were a little bit more closely aligned than they are today. So st- values like, you know, like the value of working hard, self-reliance, uh, things that we would probably recognize as conservative, if not outright right wing. I don't want to put, but I want to, I want to, I mean, they were very like, you know, I, and I'll, I will, I will corroborate this. They were very like anti-welfare state. They were very like, you know, black people can solve their own problems. This was all part of the uh, the the sort of like Reagan Republican um, uh, ideal was. And, and I think this was very, very much part of immigrants was the I, if I can make it, anyone can make it. Like if if I, I'll, I just work hard, I showed up here. I don't have any. I came here with nothing in my pocket mm-hmm. and I made it. And, uh, you know, and I, and I feel like that the, you know, coming to America at that time, you know, America was set up to receive us, right? Like there was already a system in place to turn us into Americans. There was, um, there was a, there was a educational, uh, and vocational, and cultural system uh, to integrate immigrants into the workforce uh, and into society as, as quickly as possible. And I think a lot of stuff that we thought was at, you know, at we being immigrants, I'm a second gen, I, I was born here, but you know, whatever, um, was mistaken as I came to this foreign country and did it all on my own for you to do the same. You'd have to go to another foreign country and do it. It's not really the case. I think that this country was actively encouraging and preparing for and integrating, uh, high skill immigrant labor yeah. and low skill. Yeah. They, we, we have institutions, like a lot of this was done for us. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't like just this random country that I chose and then I came here and then fought my way to the top. No, this, this country was actively seeking out immigrants and mm-hmm. had an active policy towards immigrants. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, but I think it was, it, again, you're right. It's, it is much more flattering to rewrite the story to say I did it all myself. And that showed, I think, in the political, uh, the ways that the Republican Party at that time really had made a lot of inroads with Asian Americans because they were selling the idea of self-sufficiency. They were selling the idea of, of um, individualism. They were uh, against the idea of people organizing against their bosses or against, in, against their government. Why would you be so antisocial, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Uh, that, and I think a lot of Asian American immigrants that I knew in my cohort really imbibe that and that applied to small business owners uh as much or perhaps sometimes even more uh than your white collar workers or your academics and, and things like that yeah i'd say you that's know? that's correct that's correct to say. Mm-hmm. i mean I, and i mean if we want to go back into the history then the, the immigration act was signed in 1965 the civil rights act was signed in 68 um 
I haven't seen too much, uh, too much directly tying the two, but what little I've seen shows to me points to there being a very intentional purpose to that too. Um, that immigrant labor, immigrant particularly skilled labor, was act actively being brought in as a buffer or a damper on on uh, black um, uprising, liberation that was going on periodically throughout the 60s as well. Uh, so I want that on the record too, that I recognize that th these a lot of historical forces were acting in tandem to bring us here. And we are doing ourselves and our place in society a, a, a huge, um, we're, not, we're not doing ourselves any favors here by eliding that history. We just simply talk about 1965 Immigration Act, boom, happened, and now we're here. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think this is maybe at the heart of a lot of the changes that I'm seeing with respect to Asian Americans that I find fascinating is that, you know, the least – and this makes sense, right? I think this makes intuitive sense is that the least anti-authoritarian people are going to be the ones that arrived here uh, the most recently. Yeah. Right? Why, why would you go to a country only to not respect its government and its rules? And the and authority. You have to like have, if I if I show up in, in a, you have to buy in to some ideal to. that is being promised. Right, uh, and, 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 and I think we all feel it when we're tourists. I think uh, when I travel to a foreign country, I have an instinct in me to be well behaved. I don't. I'm not here to cause trouble. I'm not here to be in, get involved. I'm just here to be a tourist, spend some money, uh, see the sights, and in general, follow the rules. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, some, some drunk, you know, sexpats in Southeast Asia, notwithstanding, I'm saying normal tourists, um, you know, generally speaking, like you, you're not, you're not going abroad to break the rules. Yeah. And I think, you know, to extent that that would be true, I think of immigrants too, is like, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't uproot, come to America only to be anti-authoritarian -author and, uh, now I think, and maybe this is where we segue a little bit. Um, you tell me, but I think that with America, things have really changed a lot in terms of what America is, or, or maybe not what America is, but what it's revealed itself to be and what it stands for. And, you know, like it must be very strange right now for immigrants to be in a country where, um, the default position is to sort of hate the administration to hate the president. Yeah. Like hate what we it, see as the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, the, this, I think the situation changed a lot with Trump where, um, I, I just don't think America had any more left in the tank in terms of maintaining like esteemability. You know, and and I think that puts immigrants in a particular and, and I pointed this out like, you know, I think I think the thankful immigrant trope, I, I've pointed out Kizir Khan before. He's the man who lost his uh, son. He's a Pakistani American immigrant. He lost his son in, I believe, Iraq. And he was out shilling against uh, he was calling Trump because uh, Trump had said a lot of anti-Muslim shit in his campaign, which is not surprising. And of course, one of his first, you know, executive actions was try to implement a Muslim ban. 
Um, and so they had Kazir Khan come and call Trump a racist and stuff, which he deserves. But on the other hand, I'm like, but you're sh- you're you're shilling for the woman who voted for the war that ended up taking your son. Yeah. You know, and then I and and I and I see this a lot with uh, uh, Asian immigrants is, you know, we end up caping for a country that ends up doing a lot of fucked up shit. And we be- and we become unwitting uh, stooges of it. And I saw this. I sent this over to you. I saw this uh, in an article recently called. We immigrants know the America bashers are ridiculously wrong. This is ran in the New York Post, so it's not a very well-written article, but I just there's nothing in it that's worth talking about, except maybe the last paragraph, very last paragraph. Um, we are in a difficult moment in our nation's history, but if an immigrant family arriving in a new country in the tumultuous late 1970s could believe in the goodness of America and have hope for a better day, so could we all. America's days, best days are ahead if we remember what made us great in the first place. She's coming, this is actually by a Russian second generation immigrant named Carol Markowitz, and she identifies as a conservative. She writes in places like the New York Post. But this is what Asian Americans look like to me, for the most part. We look like this. We look like people who say, we immigrants know the America bashers are ridiculously wrong. And it, this informs most of the interactions I have with other Asian Americans these days when we talk about stuff. We talk, you know, we're more, yeah, we're disgusted by the far right, but we're also like a little bit more fearful of the far left that um, I think we are in a way flatter ourselves to to be the, you know, we're like America whisperers. Like we know the true value, you know, the true greatness or true value or true spirit of America. Uh, and I think we're stooges. I think they like to pedestalize immigrants like this. And if you do it, there's a, there's a, there's a future in it for you. You're going to get published. If you do it well enough there, you're going to get put on a pedestal. And I am interested, I guess I'm interested in the discontent. I'm not interested in immigration because I'm not an immigrant in that sense. I'm interested in the discontinuity between being an immigrant and then becoming a person who all you ever knew and all you ever will know is America. And what kind of identity does, do you derive? Like how do you, what identity do you, can you transition from, from my parents are Asian immigrants and know nothing about America, but came here to second generation. I know nothing but America. That discontinuity I think is huge I think people have labeled it as traumatic. Uh, and I think it is in many ways, like everything that we've ever talked about in this pod is that discontinuity. And uh, I think it's a difficult, well, for me anyway, I think that without a doubt that it is appropriate now to start questioning uh, America's inherent goodness, to start really questioning the establishment pouring over and interrogating its record uh, of, of quote, achievement, really paying attention to the people who have been victimized in America for generations uh, throughout history, Black Americans, uh, Native peoples, all that, and, and Asians, of course. And uh, I think, how do you get, but my question then is, how do you get from uh, the thankful immigrant uh, to the son or daughter of the second generation um, who 
wants to openly question what's going on, which I think is a completely appropriate thing to do right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know if that's why you're bringing it up. But that's why when you bring it up, that's what I makes what makes me think of is well. That's the question that 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 was on my mind, and this is why I wanted to talk about this in this particular way. Uh, I why, why I started with guilt? We have to let go of that guilt because we flip. Mm. What comes hand in hand with that guilt is a feeling of indebtedness, right? Or feeling like you are you have to do a thing in a certain way to because you are obligated. You hold some responsibility, repay some debt that you have incurred as a result of this, this residual guilt that you're feeling. This is why we have to let go of that guilt. What, mm. My parents came on a simple labor exchange. Uh, the U.S. needed their labor, their skills. They came and they, they, did, what they, they did what they came to do. And they did it well. Um, what, what, how, does that indebt, how am I indebted to that? I don't like seeing uh, this narrative of indebtedness carried on by the second generation who, who do you think owe, who do you think we they we feel indebted to our parents or to america or to some amalgam of both some amalgam of both and when it's america we mean we mean white america mm. the people who put that ink on that 1965 immigration act and this is why i think it's right. dangerous just to to not question our origin our origin story um look, 1965 that act was not an act of charity Right. A lot of times we talk about it as if it is. Uh, and it's simply not true. Even if it were true, that debt has, has long been paid. Mm-hmm. The U.S. needed labor. We came to fill that that gap in the labor. We we they had children. That's us. We are American citizens by birth, by birthright. Right. This is our country, too, now at this point. Right. So when they're like, oh, we have it, to- it also blew up in their faces a bit. I think it's important to know it that did. they did not expect that it would that there would be a, such a dramatic shift towards uh, Latin America and Asia. I think that's what really freaked people out was this huge influx of Latin Ameri- Latin Americans right. and Asians. They thought that there would actually be a, a new pipeline of Europeans coming through yeah. the family because of the family visa. I mean, to but the point where the rhetoric... Europeans didn't really have much of an interest in coming here. Yeah, yeah. Um, to the point where the rhetoric shifted abruptly in the late seventies. 80s, you can see this reflected in the media. Maybe we should talk about that too. Um, where it turns into white and immigrant, right? There is no, there is no room for a white immigrant in that identity, even though um, if you look at the statistics, European immigration was still very much a thing well into our life, into our lifetimes. Uh, but there's no, but there's no space for that. It's white versus immigrant. Um, I think that's a, that's an important rhetorical shift that says a lot about uh, how we uh, how we are socialized to view our place in this country and our relative ownership of it. But it comes to but when I but I mean just getting back to that guilt, we just need to shed that guilt. We are not. Are you, you sure it's just guilt, or is it also a certain comfort? Because I think part of it is uh, the fact that. Um, you know, despite all of what we see in terms of this outburst of uh, anti-Asian sentiment and um, racism, it's still, uh, you know, largely the case that this could change very quickly. I think, and I think it is changing quickly. But I think we're still in the world where Asian Americans of a certain stripe uh, really are. I think integrated into the sort of liberal or yeah, integrated into sort of like liberal elite corporate and academia culture 
um, pretty well. Like every, every day I log into, you know, I work at a, you know, at a big bank, big global bank. And every more, every day I get multiple emails from the CEO of the investment banking side. It's a Asian American guy. You know, yeah. I see his big, big Asian American face right in my inbox many times a day. Uh, and I was thinking about that today. Like what effect does that have on me? Um, it has, I don't want to say it has, you know, cause I think it's popular now to be like, you know, making fun of corporate diversity, uh, as a, as a hollow empty cause, which it is, I think to, in, 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 from a certain point of view, an important point of view, but to the people who are work, you know, who are actually like me, who are actually like working in these corporations, uh, I don't want to say that there's no effect. I don't know if it's a good effect per se, but to see an Asian face in a high place, I think kind of gives me a sense of like, you know what, this, this sort of like corporate America, the sort of mainstream, pragmatic, centrist, sometimes GOP, sometimes moderate Dem, doesn't really matter, but this sort of like bipartisan, sweet, pro-corporate, you know, middle, sort of very mainstream of America, that's the sweet spot for us. That's where we're going to be most welcome. That's where our identity is most secure. That's where we're most valued. And I still think that's true. I think so. You know, and I like, think that's an uncomfortable part because that mm-hmm. comes with a moral, with, with some moral consideration. Exactly. Um, yes. And I, so I think uh, we use this in very canny ways. Uh, so on the one hand, it is crushing guilt that is that has a paralyzing effect. On the other it kind of ennobles some rather venal pursuits. Uh, if you get if you get my drift, it justifies. You mean like, it justifies you mean this personal striving and and yeah. chase, chasing the brass ring. Yeah, uh, there, because, there's a moral quality to it now that it's like, well, I'm doing this for all of you, other right. non-white, non-binary people, to prove to you that you can do it too, or that, that and yeah, you belong here. Yeah, I'm proof yeah. that the system actually works. Um, right. I did it. Why can't you? The system's basically okay. Um, and and look, if you want, you can't challenge me. Look, my parents were, my dad grew up in a peanut farm with no floor. Right, right. Uh, you, you know, I've come around a little bit to this is like, because I, I, I'm constantly changing my mind about shit. But like, I think that the left... They left the left people, leftist people, or whatever you want to call them, uh, do wrong to just simply attack this as, and I've done this too all the time. I do this all the time, but I know in a sense that I'm overcorrecting for myself, right? Like I'm overemphasizing, overstating the case of how hollow this is. But I think to truly change people's minds about it, I have to acknowledge that it's not completely hollow. That there is a a real effect to seeing Asian faces in high places. There is a real effect to seeing um, Asians becoming accepted and normalized in predominantly white spheres like the, like, like upper management or, you know, like being a professor at a university or whatever it is, whatever the hell it is that there, there really is a calming, stabilizing effect to that and i don't want to discount the the importance of that uh i just don't i I think what you're saying is correct is that we have an obligation to question further 
the sort of like moral considerations of being complicit with a system that we should know at this point is fundamentally broken. And that if we zoomed out that we are being asked to be complicit and to, to sort of perpetuate a lot of these corrupt systems. But you know, that's a lot to ask. Okay. Here's a, here's a simpler ask. How about we shift the rhetoric on model minority, right? Most of it is the extent to which I see this discussed. It's either it's uniformly model minority is a myth. Um, that's it's not really. It, it's a little. It's a little deeper than that, don't you think? Yeah, why I don't do know why they call it a myth. The myth part kind of gets me. That's not. It's not really a myth, is it? It's kind of true. For it's it's so. I understand it's <laughs> yeah. exclusionary, so it should not be applied as a. And I understand that for people that it excludes, it is extremely damaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not a myth. It's kind no, it's of why it's kind of why we're here. Right. It's entirely in line with the social, cultural, and economic forces that brought us here. Yes. Um, so why do we not talk about model minority as a class analysis? Uh, to me, what mm-hmm. I see in model minority is a, a, a generations-long social experiment on the extreme durability of class privilege, mm-hmm. that it transcends culture, in fact. Mm-hmm. So we're not saying that it applies to all Asians because it can't because we're a very diverse bunch, um, and with income inequality be, metrics being what it is, we might be the most uh, we might be the most divergent on this front. But for the people like my parents and your parents, um, and a significant portion of the Asian immigrants who came post 1965, um, they came with they brought with them some amount of class privilege. Um, that has endured across generations. So we're mm. seeing that what you're saying, like Asian faces in the boardroom and high places, I see this too. Um, I'm in tech. It is not abnormal to see an Asian face uh, in those circles it, doing very well. Uh, I know the glass ceiling is a thing, but overall, but overall, I mean, it's we're doing okay. Let's, let's be clear. But uh, why do we never talk about it? Why do we never bring it back as a class analysis? We're talking about like, this has transcended culture. If you bring money and skills with you, you can basically make it work anywhere in a capitalist society. Why is it only a, a question? Why is it only a question of identity at this point? Hmm. Right. So I'd say let's bring mm-hmm. it back. We can talk about this, but it has. But it's. Uh, but it's. But when we bring it back, it has to be in line with uh, where we would like things to go. If, in that case, we need. If we're saying we need a broad class critique, this is where model minority comes right back into play. We're saying, yeah, we're actually we're saying that that is true. Uh, mm-hmm. From people from halfway across the world, um, from places decimated by war, the people who brought with them some kernel of class privilege were able to foster that and make it and make it bloom here in a hostile in a hostile foreign land, and barely two generations in. Uh, a lot of us are doing pretty damn well because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this lends, so to me, this lends uh, strength to a, uh, a to a progressive analysis of where society is going. Right? We we are telling this is this is how this is how perva- this is how pervasive and sticky um, class privilege is. But okay, so but but short, like. Uh, essentialize that for me like the the model minority 
you're saying let's use that as a class critique. What's the class critique exactly? It's that you're saying that in fact that's that is what we are, and I'm therefore not, mm-hmm. no, no, no. I'm talking. It's not about a, it's not a matter of we. It's talking about a social experiment where, um, okay, when we talk about a person, like let's say an individual's success, right? The way we see it written mm-hmm. about in Forbes or something, right? The latest billionaire or something. Uh, we talk about them in very individual terms, right? Like. Uh, came from this family, this kind of family, this kind of background, school he went to, worked really hard, found a little bit of luck, worked really hard again, blah, 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 and boom, uh, top of the charts uh, and a billionaire, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like, let's systematize that a little bit. That's all I'm saying here. I'm, what I'm saying here is that we've, we have, a, we, we, you and me, and many others that we know, kind of stand as a testament that um let's see um that aside from markers of identity or culture there are distinctive class markers that tend to that uh, um that can be fostered basically anywhere in the world at this point Mm -hmm. so this is the neoliberal dream So, and this is so. This is how dangerous, and this is how powerful. It, it dangerous, depending on your perspective, dangerous and powerful it is to be but, able to. But you're saying from. that 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 it means that we that there's no specific, there's no special uh, notion about America at that point. That this is just the sort of like uh, global class identity, or yeah, this uh, is uh, global. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But this is global. Uh, this transcends any like people will talk about it as as uh, as aesthetic markers, right? Like oh, like the Oriental um, uh, emphasis on working hard or collectivism or something like that. It's it's either. It's interesting you say that because I mean it makes me think of Steve Bannon and this sort of like white white nationalist revolt against what do they call every what do they call it? Their enemy is the globalists. Mm-hmm. Is this this idea of sort of like a global cabal of you know class overlords that have hijacked and obliterated national identity and unity, right? I mean, I think I think in a way like that is also what a Steve Bannon is kind of honing in on is this a sort of a white ethnic grievance of the globalists, the global the global elite that are not particularly married to uh, any notion of national, uh, of national ethic or national uh, identity where I have a special bond with my other American brethren. No, if you're below me, I have, you know, and people say this all the time. And it, as it's true, that's the, that's the scary thing about uh, Abandon is that half of what he says is true. Yeah. Uh, the other half is fucking uh, a, a terrible uh, evil world destroying lie, but the half that's true is what gets you in the door is the idea that the elites really do think like, Hey, I think I have more in common with a wealthy person in Tokyo or, or London than I do with, you know, uh, the, the, like the, the white, the white dude down the street, um, you know, they don't have a job, even though we live in the same neighborhood, you know? So I think model minority ties into that. It ties exactly Mm -hmm. into that. So I'd say let's bring it back, but along those dimensions, not as an identity marker, but as a class marker. 
Um, we are talking, like you and me, we probably could, we probably could, and I'm sure you've been thinking about like, where would we go if things turned way south, right? Uh, chances are anywhere with an internet connection, uh, we could make a living. We could probably make a decent living. Yeah, though, to be honest, I just don't want to leave. <laughs> no, I'm, no, this is, this is irrespective. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is irrespective of where we would want to be, right? Where we feel right. comfortable as people, uh, right? Mm -hmm. This is simply about where we could be. How mobile could we be around the world? Yeah, you know, you're right, because I think what you're getting at is definitely a marker of a sort of elite second gen. I don't even know if it's elite, but it is an aspirational idea. A cosmopolitanism. Of, um, cosmopolitan, a global cosmopolitanism. The ideal would be like, I spend a little part of the year over here. I spend a little part of the year over in Asia. I shuttle between the two. I have friends all over the world. Yeah, I could see that. I'm, yeah, a, I'm, not, a, I'm a man of everywhere, nowhere and everywhere at the same time. Yeah, the positive is, yeah. the positive spin on that is someone who is, you know, cultured and globally aware, you know, empathetic, blah blah blah, uh, knows how to be a quote global citizen. The flip side of that is opportunistic, right? Um, self, mm -hmm. uh, self, um, say selfish or self-absorbed, right? Um, if shit hits the fan, they're they're going to be the first ones out. They're they're not going to be in the trenches um, fighting the good fight at home, right? They will go yeah. wherever is convenient for them. Um, yeah, and I think there's a I think there's a fair amount of anger at such people uh -huh. for good reason, you know. And I and and, and I think that um, and, and I'm what, I guess wait, I'm surprised. What is that an I, analog I for? That is an embodiment of. Uh, how money behaves. Yeah, capital and yeah. Yeah, so we've That's basically right. just mm -hmm. collapsed to the distinction between the two at this point. Yeah, we're just seeing people as a uh, like wield or temporary like conduits. Yeah, and and, and I do think that uh, you know it is unfortunate because I think that the there is ultimately there is a need i think for a sort of like revival of an american national nationalism there is a clear need for that it's not something that i'm i've ever wanted i've and, and this is the thing like it's not something that i've i'm predisposed to saying that that's true like i very much would prefer to just be some you know america to just be the land of endless opportunity so that i can like meet my own personal goals of uh, you know, money and status and uh, consumptive happiness. I'm not above these things. I like these are great things. If you know what I mean, like they are. Uh, I'm not better than that, but I would say that you know, eventually reality comes around, and a lot of that stuff is delusional. And I'm starting to understand that uh, you can't have a you can't really have a country without a national identity, uh, and. At some point, we're going to have to face, we're going to have to reckon with that need. This is, I think that's another mega theme of like the podcast that we've done throughout the years is the, this, well, I think at the end, you know, it's not really that we're talking about, it's not just that we're talking about Asian people or Asian American people, but also that our failure to find you know, of root in America or to take root or not, maybe not our failure, but our ongoing struggle to, to, to take root in America is I think says more about the soil than the plant that mm -hmm. 
uh, there is, it is very difficult to find that in America because it's not really there. And when I see the country going through these really violent spasms of search of, of clashes over identity, racial identity, political identity, regional class identities, things like that, everything uh, is a failure to, for there to be an overarching national identity. And of course, there's always the menace of white supremacy saying that, that they are the true uh, national identity. And that's the big, you know, fearful, that's, that's the fascist threat. Uh, but as an Asian, I think the experience in America, I think the experience thus far has been, you know, if I was to look back on everything is that, yeah, you know, when we talk is very internal, uh, we have a very internal Racial, you know, this goes to what you were saying about that class that I'm glad you failed over at uh, across the Yad at Havoc <laughs> is uh, this inward turn, right? Like, let's 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 complete the story of myself. Uh, that you know, that's that's really a small way to think about it because you know, I think that the struggles that uh, you know Asian Americans have is uh, very revealing about the nature of America. Like, why is it that we fail to take root here? Like, what is the problem here? And I think in the experience of a lot of Asian people here, you can actually derive a lot of lessons about America, generally speaking, uh, rather than some unique revelation about ourselves as people, which I, which I always felt was weird, was this like trying to systematize the intensely personal, right? Mm-hmm. Like to make the intensely personal um, – hey, sorry – uh, the kettle's boiling. Um, uh, but but yeah, this 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 need to internalize or to systematize what the deeply personal, and that we would have a class about how Asian people, Asian American people feel and our emotions and stuff. And I'm like, isn't that very dependent on the individual? You know. But these patterns emerge, and I'm like, you you know, maybe the project isn't really to study ourselves, uh, but to try and figure out the fuck is wrong with America. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, I think that's a much more interesting thing than to try and deeply understand the nature of the pain of all other Asian people in America, all other 20 million of us. I don't, I don't think I have the capacity for that. Uh, and I don't think it's appropriate for me to even try to do that. (laughs) I, I mean, I don't even want to start from the perspective that we are broken. Right. I don't, I'm not. Yeah, convinced yeah. That we are. There you go. Um, you know, um, so I'm I think we have just, common struggles. I don't think that means we're broken. No. Um, and I mean, one word yeah. really tripped me up and this was the first time, uh, I was like 19, I guess, mm. you know, mm. uh, that really tripped me up in that class was assimilation. It's such a, mm. it's such a four letter word, especially these days. And, and it probably always was. And to me in America, this this word doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. So the struggle to assimilate, or even you know whether the choice, whether we even have a choice, people talk about it as if it's a choice or now, right? Like choose to assimilate or choose to not assimilate. I don't really think it's a choice. Um, you are a product of where you have come up. Um, assuming that there is a choice and that is falling for a pretty liberal conception of identity formation, that it is a matter of choice. Uh, that you can be pretty cosmopolitan in this. I, I think it's a lot more 
space, and I don't think it needs to be challenged that much either. But also this question of, well, you know, I need to assimilate to something. And to me, there's nothing, there's nothing really that deep on the other side of that. Like, it's not hard to be an American, in my opinion. It's the absence of a lot. It's actually shedding quite a lot of, uh, of uh, what would be social, what would be seen as social constraints uh, or structures, superstructures that are in place in more mature societies around the world. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, so, but then treating it as if it is a static thing, like there is a thing like being American um, that it's possible to assimilate into, as if it's a uniform thing and it isn't tightly bound and stratified by um, class and race and culture and geography. This, I mean, this is a huge fucking country, gigantic. Um, what does it mean to become American? I mean, no one, once you think about it, you can't have an answer. Um, if you start listening to people's challenges uh, about it, though, you kind of get a sense of what they stand for. They usually say you can't, you know, we're Americans now. We, it's not our place to, you know, you know, we're, it's not our place to challenge this stuff about America. It's always stuff like, um, like, it's also kind of right wing stuff. Like, like, I don't think we should be, you know, fighting a war for 20 years in the Middle East. Like, oh, well, you know, if you want to be a patriot, if you want to be a true American, you got you to what? Support war? That's your conception of what being an American is? Yeah, I mean, that that's that's the other thing, right? Is that the you're right. I think that what I'm get the way I try to re, try to package what you're saying if I understand it correctly. Um you know, it's like that the thankful immigrant is not like an external unknown uh, presence in America. Like what they say about America being like the land of immigrants is very true. Like the immigrant is a well-established, well-understood uh, segment of society that is necessary for the function of America. There has always been immigrants in America. Uh, an American society is built around structure that assumes that the immigrant exists. And so, you know, when you when I saw that Carol Markowitz article about how, you know, immigrants know that the American bashers are wrong or whatever, you know, it suddenly seems very clear. It's much more clear. I mean, like, like immigrants serve a purpose here, have always served a purpose here. And even when you, you know, this this individual cohort or this specific cohort of immigrants becomes a second, third, fourth generation. There's another first, there's always going to be another first generation cohort here. Uh -huh. So they're even as like, you know, particular people and family and lineages move through the generations and assimilate over time. There's still always going to be this unchanging fact that there's going to be a first generation of immigrants here. Uh, and they serve the same purpose. And, you know, I think like the, the, I guess the thing is like it's really passing the buck too. It's a society that mm -hmm. does not. Know, I mean, it's a function of time. I don't think there's a way to hack this. I think the closest we came was uh, was post World War II. We invented advertising. Um, like that yeah. was as close. That that's the hack, right? To create not a national identity, a national brand. That's the hack. I, but I guess what I'm getting at, Jess, is. Uh, these sort of like increasing number of like 
hor- hor- horrifying revelations that I have as I enter middle age is that I'm sorry you know <laughs> we're not de- yeah but you know everyone's gonna have them trust me yeah. um we're not destined we're not special okay like as Asian Americans we may think we're special and I think we've taken our specialness for granted like we've assumed it and internalized our specialness but there there is our deep ways in which we are not special and this story has happened before there have been second there've always been second generations in America and we are going to in many ways follow a path that's pretty well tread and it's a little bit horrifying but also a little bit comforting in a way to know where we're headed like that it's not a mystery where things are going to head you know and i think part of the assimilation process for example um you will see like an increasing amount of political uh fragmentation or polarization or factionalism as you move forward, I think you're going to see like a lot of Asian Americans that break much harder left, become much more anti, anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment. And there's others that are going, depending on sort of like, you know, their own situation in life, are going to become very like sort of like pro-establishment, very striver-ish. They're going to be form an elite class. And then you're going to have these other nuts that go right wing uh you're gonna have others that uh want to how do i do you do you see what i'm saying like i, I know i'm like really meandering with this, this but is, what i'm saying this is this is, just this is what happens to americans yeah yeah like you show up in america and this is what happens to you over the generations and that's going to happen to us and this it's not we're not going to be any different this yeah. is the nature of people and it's the nature of uh the story in america you know mm-hmm. um and uh there's no matter how special we are, I guess with age, I'm starting to realize like everything has been done before. Everything has been tread before. Everything has been experienced before. It is a cycle. And, uh, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is that that is probably what assimilation means to me now is the understanding that you are already part of a process. Yeah. It's inescapable. It, it was happening to you all along. You just didn't know it. And it happened to the people before. They didn't know it, that it was happening to them, and then they knew it. And uh, that's assimil- I think that's assimilation, is finally, finally realizing that the process that you went through is... Like, you talk about the Irish all the time. I was going to actually <laughs> bring them up. You, you, yeah. I was going to bring them up, like, right now. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> where, yeah. where were you going with it? No, exactly. I think for whatever reason you were brought up, I was going to probably bring it up, was oh. that this happened to them. Or it happened to you were watching Perfect Strangers, Balky Bartokamus from Mipos, right? Yeah. Like, it happened to him. All right? Yeah, we got to talk, talk about the ethnic whites in media of the 70s. The ethnic 80s. whites, yeah. Probably yeah, yeah. when, you know, as, as, as European immigration failed, with the people creating the stuff, this is when they actually had a family member who came from the old country. Um, right. And, you know, they were working some shit out in that time period. Um, yeah. Perfect Strangers. Uh, we got Latka, Gravas, Taxi. Uh, who else? Uh, I mean, this show's Did you ever see Golden bit. Girls? Um, I, I just watched it as a kid, like a handful of okay. times. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Estelle Getty was from Sicily. Oh. oh. And then, you know, yeah. yeah. 
So she had and that then, attitude. Uh, yeah. B. Arthur was uh, her like Americanized daughter mm-hmm. that totally disappointed her and doesn't have any connection <laughs> to the culture. Betty uh-huh. White played Rose, who was from Saint Olaf. She was oh. like the sort of like country bumpkin okay. who grew up in a sort of uh, Scandinavian far i you know an an uh scandinavian rural kind of i identities that we no longer have any understanding of but back then mm-hmm. yeah like you said it was probably something that like the producers of the television show were pretty familiar with you know like oh you, oh you know those like really dumb women that the, the really dumb aunties from like some scandinavian town called like saint olaf yeah, was, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Nobody has any fucking clue what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, when we talk, um, like, we talk yeah. about, like, uh, I think it, it does absolutely take on a different dimension when we bring in uh, race as a factor. But when you yes, look at, does, like, yeah. like caricatures of, you know, foreign Europeans, basically, um, and they're always, like, un- like from a made-up country. They never, they're never, like, really that specific. Um, uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, like, what what the hell? Um <laughs> But like Latka, right, from Taxi. Um, it, yeah. To anyone who's like under uh, 40, I'm not sure. It's on Hulu. Check it out. It's pretty funny. I just started watching. I had no idea what the show was. But apparently like every like famous comedian from that era came through. I already saw like Jeffrey Tambor. Um, what's his name? Doc from Back to the Future. He's a, he's a star. Like big show back in the day. But like Latka is uh, this Eastern European um, guy. Uh, who works at the you know the taxi cab company? Uh, and his old shtick is that he talks in gibberish, just like vaguely like Russian. Andy Kaufman, right? Andy Kaufman, yeah, that's his starring. Yeah. That's his, I guess, his star making role. He's hilarious at it, but it's absolutely a caricature, right, of a certain kind of uh, immigrant. It's yeah. played for you know, the, the 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 modern the modern. I think a modern update of that would be Borat. Um, um, I mean, a, actually, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you ever watched uh, what was it? what's that show called? That seventy show. Uh, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, and it had that, and then it had it also, and I, and, I mean, it's called that seventy show. Obviously, it's a callback from the nineties to the shows of you know to the seventies. And there is a character uh, who also um, speaks kind of unintelligible. Like the whole shtick is that nobody else but like the the core group can oh, really Fez? understand it. Fez, yeah. Uh, nobody yeah. can understand what he's saying, and I think he's a direct, uh, like he's a direct call to you know Latka Gravas from Taxi. He, they're and, incomplete Americans. They have not completed the process yet. Yeah, they're, but in they're the 90s, still in like prototype form. They're they're pupa. They're pupae. Yeah, they're larvae. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in the nineties, he's uh, from an unnamed South American country. He's brown now. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, which. Yeah. Raj from uh, Raj from uh, 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 the Big Bang Theory. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. is a little bit like that. Now he's an Asian guy. He's an Indian guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, so you can just see. So I'm not saying that they're necessarily the same, but you can see this kind of repeated over time with different groups as they come in, as they become part of uh the national like fabric basically i think people. they are the same i think they're i think they're very similar they play very similar yeah. roles in each of those shows yeah i'm saying it yeah. follows a pattern i think uh i think in terms of so I, so when we talk about you know like like caricatures of you know like asians or whoever i i think it, it's it's uh, it's warranted but not without understanding this much bigger picture of how media has handled these social transitions over time 
It didn't yeah, you know, Italians used Italians used to get played for sort of being these unassimilable, swarthy white people. They're not really white, and mm-hmm. you know that there there was uh, there's actually like a pretty big like lobbying group like called it's kind of like um I forgot what they're called, but it's kind of in like an anti defamation league for Italian Americans. Yeah, I heard Saints. about. Yeah, I did a whole yeah. like um, a Scorsese run earlier this year. Uh, like we're all watching movies all the time now, right? So uh, a yeah. whole Scorsese run. I mean, that's his whole. I think it gets it gets uh, now that he's been canonized as uh, as like the American filmmakers or something. This dimension gets lost. But if you look at his early works, it's very much rooted in that um, the the that Italianness. That very yeah. much like Italian, that Brooklyn it- or Bronx Italian uh, persona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's this is very much part of that. Uh, uh, it's very much of that moment in time of that particular yeah. group. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think the model minority, so to speak, when you're the way you're saying it, uh, you know, I think it has that mentality has its head up its own ass in terms of like where it is and what it is. Like I I have to think that it's still trading, like you said, in a fantasy that like we're everything all at once. And this, this came up originally. I wanted to do a podcast called the sympathizer, like S I M P where I just roasted Viet Thanh Nguyen. And I'm feeling bad. I'm not sure I should do that anymore, but um, (laughs) this came up and I think he is very much a model minority. Uh, He, was challenged or he not even he was trolled by some white dude uh who lives in vietnam and has a vietnam vietnamese wife i believe he's white and he said like you know uh, as a guy who's lived in vietnam for 12 years i I don't really think you know your own culture very much you know (laughs) and like it 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 like vietnam one went on a 5500 word uh uh mental like fucking breakdown on facebook and i thought that that was really interesting because you know, I think that the horror for Asian Americans, now that I think about it, is that we can't be like, I think we're constantly flipping between like this idealized vision of ourselves as sort of like the best of both worlds. And and then the reason I bring him up is because he was like, I'm like, not only am I Vietnamese, I'm like better than Vietnamese. Yeah. Like I'm so good that my own government bans me. So because my books were banned by the Vietnamese government, that means that I understand something deeper about Vietnamese, about Vietnam, than even the Vietnamese government, like, is willing to allow its people to know. Like, yeah. I am, you know, like, I think that there is an, we, we, we create very idealized notions of ourselves as a sort of crutch against the more, um, I don't know if it's horrifying, but the more sing, the more, uh, uh, what's, what is the word? The more modest reality, let's say. Prosaic. Uh, that, it's a much more mundane reality. Yeah. A more prosaic reality, a more mundane reality, uh, which is that like, look, you're, you're, you're just an American. Yeah. I mean, you're just a, you're just a yellow American. And you don't you don't really know a lot about the rest of the world because you never live there. You live here. And, you know, at some point, 
uh, that sort of reality sets in that understanding that no, you're not this like idealized version. And we're talking about a guy that won the Pulitzer prize here. He still has this sort of like anxiety about him. You know what I mean? Like, like he rely, like he's the kind of guy that like most writers, I think that win the Pulitzer don't really like to talk about, it's a bit of an embarrassment, but he's the type that, you know, you'll know with, you'll know it three minutes before you meet him, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's all over the place and he loves talking about it. And he loves saying like, you know, even though I won the Pulitzer, I think my parents are still going to ask me what I'm going to do with my life. (laughs) And uh, I mean, that's how he jokes about it. And this is, this is the kind of guy I'm talking about. Like he is the pinnacle of his field. He won a fucking Pulitzer. That is a big deal. Uh, But I still think that there is this sort of like, you know, even with someone like him, as was revealed in that meltdown that there still is an un in an unaddressed, you know, anxiety about the true nature of who we are. Are we just going, you know, like, are we just going to turn into like all the other Americans that came before us with their, that we honestly look down on uh, as being, you know, provincial and, uh, you know, ignorant and all this stuff. Like, are you, we just going to end up kind of like them in our, in our own way? Do you, does that make sense? Like it does. can some like white dude in Vietnam be like, you know, I don't really think you know a lot about Vietnam. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and uh, it fucking freaked him out and I get it. I get it. Yeah. You know, I, we're subject to the same forces. But insofar as we're saying like this is this is this is all headed in a very bad direction. This isn't. We can all feel it, right? That this is mm. not going in a good direction. So we're subject to the same forces. But but uh, so our fortunes are tied, but not um, but not like inexorably so. Mm. I think things are going to change because while we how America has handled it. Um, for the last 70 years, I, I don't think that was a sustainable model for how a society functions. And that is, that yeah. it's showing its, it's showing its barrenness now, like now. Right. We want I, to I, like I, I am, I am coming to see that, uh, yes, we are just Americans, uh, that it's better to embrace that than to hold on to these notions that we're somehow the best of both worlds. <laughs> Bullshit, right? No, no, we're not. Um, I think that I'm also starting to see that, like, uh, yo, black people are make a good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, they make a damn good point about America. And I think that I'm really, really thankful that there is such a thing as black American thought uh, and tradition because I think they really understand America. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I, as a non-white person could, you know, merge into the main of America and finally be, be like, Hey, you know, fuck, we're just a fucking American without knowing that there is that view out there, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that it sort of expands the zone of possibility here to be like, I don't want to just turn into a dumb fat American. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I, I think that there is like something really right uh, and, 
urgent about uh, what a lot of like black activists are saying about America. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that I like quote love black people or anything like that. Uh, I think I think of black people as pe- as just people, you know, like they're just people in this. Like you just go out. Collectively, they've had this... different. They've had different struggles, uh, and I think you can. There is a sharpness to your vision in your critique of a place when you've been the one suffering from it. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. It's 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 that the way they see things because of their history and their traditions, I think, is to me a very attractive thing. Like it's a very, it's something well, it's that just one. makes. I don't, I'm not. I don't want to romanticize. <laughs> like it's hard one. Um, yes. The lessons, the lessons that come from that, like we can all benefit from that. But but the vision is very. Attra- but I think it the is. vision is very attractive to me in the sense that, like, you to see America as as struggle you know, is to me a much more beautiful thing about America than this idea that America is like pretty much fully baked. Eh, we're all here to just, you know, fucking take it easy. We're just here to like, you know, whatever, or to work our asses off to the bone and, and salute the flat or whatever the fuck other shit they want immigrants to, um, uh, to co-sign on, on TV. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that those visions of America, like I don't want to merge into that. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't envision myself one day being on the stage, um, shilling for for a Clinton. Yeah, you know what I mean, uh, that kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, I think for me, it's like, I if you don't view America as a struggle, as an ongoing historical struggle, then there's no history to America worth knowing. The only history in my opinion worth knowing about america and and contextualizing yourself into i think is the notion that america is contested space it's always been contested space it continues to be contested space it's never been more contested in my lifetime than it is now mm-hmm. like what's the know, national and, character that for like up until like 1923 <laughs> on the last mm-hmm. tract of california our our national character was you had a problem you go west that's it. Mm, we just kept like kicking, true. literally kicking the can down the road. Just keep, keep mm. moving. You have a problem, move. Uh, yeah. We just ran out of, we just ran out of West. Mm. Uh, and now it's like, oh shit. Now we gotta like, like work with each other and shit. Um, that's, and it's very, very new. This is, this is all, this is all happened within the space of a century in this case. Like yeah. how, how, how developed did you expect it to be? Right. So when, when people yeah. thought, when we're like hand wringing and, Feeling, I feel there's this immense immensity of sorrow that I feel coming from people who write about this, their inability uh, to assimilate um, or to be accepted into this ideal that they've envisioned. Um, I think we can we can drop that. We can put that down uh, because what that that thing that you were sorrowful at not attaining or being prevented from attaining didn't exist to begin with. Like. Amer- yeah. the, the American character is contested space, like you said, and it's a unique thing that it is something that can be contested. This is not something you could say about most other uh, nations of the world, where the character is definitely set, where there is. A yeah, thing. that's a that's a that that's the mega point, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's 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 the that's a great conclusion to the pod. I think is that point right there is. It's almost like to to become an American is to pick up a weapon and join the fight. Mm-hmm. 
that's assimilation in a way, right? And you stake your claim, you hope it has a source of water, and then you defend it. This is this is this is kind of what it's still the Wild West in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, yeah, that yes. Uh, but but all but also now, I think you know mount there there is a growing movement of of, of an inchoate nature and i think that it you know it you know and, and i'm not sure you agreed with me on this or not but i was like you know you go to portland you see like white people fighting each other <laughs> but ostensibly over black lives it's oh, white yeah. people fighting each other over black lives matters and it makes me think uh you know that's very civil warish in a way yeah yeah. And, you know, I don't think and I and I think there is something to it, honestly, that uh, there is something about the na- there is some sort of like ongoing fight in America and um, multiple fronts. It's very confused as to what it is. But America is just one huge fucking fight. That's like Scorsese. See, this is what I'm talking about is like eventually you, you start realizing like, oh, you know, some of these people were trying to say something and then I, it's my time to understand it or something. But it's like, you know, when Scorsese, Scorsese is like his view, vision of America is just basically like one giant pit fight. It, you know, it's been nothing but violence and and fighting and and contested power mm-hmm. uh, by successive generations. And, you know, no wonder he would make a movie um like a scorsese would be able to make a movie would make a movie like gangs of new york or something like that i mean let's go and, further back let's talk about raging bull let's talk about taxi driver those are yeah, violent yeah movies. yeah well, well i'm saying that he would make a movie yeah like like he would start out making movies like that and then be interested in something like gangs of new york well and let's look at his latest right this is the evolution of scorsese it's an interesting one the last one he made was called the irishman yeah. Um, which is kind of closing the loop on a uh, tracing, but in reverse, the uh, patterns of immigration, uh, European immigration in the 20th century. He's working backwards. Mm-hmm. They would settle on the Irishman. The, um, and insofar as we stereotyped America, we kind, of, uh, we kind of stereotyped it as an Anglo-Saxon um, America. That's deep British roots. Um, most of the people, have, most of the white people, have ties to the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, England, etc. Uh, mm. So it's interesting that he would start as an Italian, and um, and as he goes further, as he goes further into his career, and now to the point where he's, you know, um, he's not at the t- peak of his game, but he's still alive and making movies. He would be reaching into a more Anglo immigration narrative uh, to round mm. it out. Ironically, yeah. using many of the same Italians that that he was using to make his uh, first movies, which is interesting. Yeah, to talk about like how the socialization of uh, those identities have merged. You uh, you were you were bringing this up in the context of Scarface too, and Cubans mm-hmm. and the, that that whole thing. And uh, oh, Scarface! Yeah, is a, and... I just recently rewatched it. It's, it's a fantastic movie. Really? Uh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Have you have yeah. you seen it? I've seen it about two times. I've I've yeah. always been turned off by the hyper violence of it, yeah. um, and I and I did not like. I don't. I'm just not a big Pacino fan. Okay. But 
Um, it is a, but it is a highly watchable movie. I'll give it that. And it is very um, raw in its interpretation of American. I think that's one reason why it resonates with a lot of people is as Scorsese does is this vision of America, I think is much more, it's not a, it's the opposite of a, of a sedate vision of America and a static vision of America. It's America as this never ending fight and, and, uh, uh, you know, grasp for, for power. Yeah. And that, that's America. Like that's the wire. That's the Sopranos. That that's what really gets people um, interested in America. And, you know, and, and I wonder if that's something that Asian Americans kind of need to embrace at some point is to be like, like we have to make a vie for power here. I like, think it's so. Not, I think they you know have I mean? to be like, mediated through some, some, some uh, some psychological grasp of struggle and violence. I think we just have the struggle, but we've internal we turn it inwards. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's stultifying and stagnating. It's paralyzing. I think the liberal I think liberal culture has done that to us. I think so. Yeah, I, mean, I think we've been educated into it, and I think we've been defanged as people. And I think a lot of people have been defanged. It's not yeah. just us, but I mean, yes, it happened to us. I think. Yeah, and we came a little later in that story. So so you know by the time. Our our media creators were of age and you know embedded enough to do this. We were seeing things like Joy Luck Club um, at the ta- at, right at peak uh, peak neoliberal globalization of culture. Yeah. Um, right. So we didn't have that. We didn't have that that violent um, uh, trial by fire that gave us this kind of symbolic entree to belongingness in America. I, I but mean, I er, watched... earlier generations did though. I think I think that um, the post nineteen sixty five maybe did not, uh-huh. but earlier generations of uh, Asian immigrants did. Yeah, like Bruce Lee is mm-hmm. is, uh, is notable. Um, I believe he was. Uh, I believe he was a second or third generation American already. Uh, by the time he made his movies, mm. um, I, I'm not sure. I think I read that someplace, but he was not like an an, an immigrant a new immigrant or even, or you might not even be the child of immigrants, uh, mm-hmm. or at least on one side or the other side of his family. Uh, so he was already pretty embedded by the time he did his thing. Yeah. Um, and, well, and also like if you talk to, cause I don't, I have this friend, uh, this older guy, Vic, Vic Huey. He's yeah. The funny, the funny thing was he was like a grip for like Scorsese. Like he was on his crew mm-hmm. and, um, he, is sort of like old school Chinatown, you know, like multi-generations and stuff. And the people in Chinatown in Manhattan are very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they've been here for multiple generations. And uh, they, they think of Chinatown as a testament to their ability to have grabbed um, a, a, a really valuable plot of land in America mm-hmm. um, and held on to it for generations and not given it up. And, uh, you know, they have a tradition there. Uh, you go, you talk to someone, you go visit some of these people, like, like Carlin Chan or something, and he has, he's got a sort of old school mob aura around him. And they talk like that too. And they have a history, a long tradition of being very belligerent in court and in, in politics about protecting the shit out of their turf. Yeah. And expanding it where possible and owning property and policing their streets and constantly being engaged um, politically uh, to fight for territory and to preserve territory. 
And uh, it's fascinating to see. And the traditions there are very different. I think the enclaves, I think, is where a lot of this stuff happens. You know, and, uh, you know, we talk to Ron Kim and sometimes I'm like, what motivates this guy? And I think it's a similar idea of what's going on here in Queens is this, but maybe an updated modern, uh, somewhat more of the times notion of it. Um, but also fight contesting, uh, space and, uh, ownership. I mean, blood and soil, you know, that gets derided and, uh, demonized, right. I mean, I'm using a right, a, a, a right wing, I mean, a downright fascist phrase, so yeah. um, it should be. But uh, there's always a kernel of something that that rings true. These, these are very deep instincts, right? We, yeah. as people, need that claim. Um, we need a claim to physical space and an uncontested, unalienable right to belong to that space. Um, in that sense, modern modern society is a completely alienated society. It's a mostly rent. It's it's a if we're talking about a renter class, if we're talking about a mortgage to the guilds class, we're talking about people who are fundamentally not rooted to a space or a place. Much less. Yeah, that, that's town. why I don't respect people like um, Rainier Maningding, Love Life of an Asian Guy, going around, uh, you know, talking shit. He's a Filipino guy talking shit about uh, Korean store owners and, and what they need to do and all this stuff. Cause I'm like, it's not that I think Korean store owners are like right or wrong per se or whatever. My point is just like, that's not your fight. Like K town in LA, that's not your neighborhood. That's not your land. Those are not your people. Like, yeah, y'all may be Asian, but they're not your people. Same thing with Jeff Yang talking, you know, talk, and all these Asian Americans talking about uh to, to Tao in, um, Minneapolis, the Asian cop that was, you know, part of that, that got indicted on the George Floyd murder. It's like, he's not your people. You don't, you don't know about this. You don't know shit about the Hmong community and what fights and, 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 and things that they got to do to survive in Minneapolis. Jeff Yang, motherfucker, you don't know anything about that. You grew up in like Brooklyn Heights and went to like St. Anne's. You don't know shit about them. What are you, what are you talking for? Do you know what I mean? And yeah. You know, that's that's why I keep my I, I hold my tongue a little bit when it comes, you know, people are like, oh, Asian Americans must stand, you know, they cannot protest Peter Liang or, or or demonstrate for Peter Liang or you can't this or that when it comes to Chinatown and all this stuff. I'm like, but that's not it's not even whether you're right or wrong. It's that that's not your fight. Like you and I and, and, and I think liberals, liberal Asians do this. They use their and, and fucking immigrants do this with their with their model immigrant shit. They use their Asianness to overstep boundaries all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. That that's something I've noticed that people do is like a Filipino guy is going to go out and start talking shit about Koreans, or you know, uh, a Korean person will start talking shit about the Chinese and what they do in Chinatown, you know, or whatever. And it's like physical space that's not yours like if you were to walk to into chinatown that's not your place even though you're asian that's not your place people in, i don't i don't you know like what with hawaii i don't know what's going on in hawaii i don't know how it works over there i don't just because i'm asian doesn't mean i know shit about what's going on in hawaii you know like yeah, there's I, a presumption think, of similarity well that yeah. trade that still trades off of difference yeah. um, and i think that's like, a very liberal notion it is 
um, you know, this way that I can universalize myself because I have the right kind of education, the right kind of vocabulary. Now I can start speaking for everyone, stick my fucking nose everywhere. It's a totalizing you know? ideology and totalizing meaning. It has to be a universalized, all encompassing framework of thinking and being. Anything yeah. that challenges that is a threat directly. Right. Um, so in that sense, it's dangerous on its, without even talking about what, it's, what stated principles are, just the fact of its totalizing force, that it relies on a totalizing effect for legitimacy makes it dangerous. Yeah. It, yeah, but see, for the thing is, like, for a lot of us, it's like, you know, I think we do that not just because we want to universalize ourselves, but in, in, in a way, because we're so atomized and so individual and we are not part of a tight-knit community like LAK Town or Manhattan Chinatown with deep interconnected roots in history and things like that, you know, what are we? We're like individuals out in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. We don't understand that these networks exist, Right. <laughs> For a lot of us, this the elite liberal class, like we don't, we don't, we don't understand the world in those terms. Right, and that alienation is not unique to us. This is what ties us back in. Right, right. This is this is a function of a of how this society functions. We are not immune from that. We are just simply reflecting the pressures of that society on us. Is that what you mean by, by you're going to be uh, assimilated, whether you like it or not? Meaning like, it, yeah. it doesn't matter whether you like, you know, uh, hang out with white people or not. It's like that aspect of American life, that atomizing nature, the yeah. way social bonds are destroyed, that is part of the assimilation process as well, right? Yeah, the superstructures mm-hmm. that shape the terms of your life, right? They cannot, re- you can't really negotiate with those. Right? That's I mean, assimilation in and that, of itself right there. That's right? assimilation. Uh, and that's the yeah. one that actually marks marks you as belonging to a particular uh, social space. Yeah. It's not about... So this is assimilation as what is being done to you versus what... It's not a question of whether you agree to have it done or whether you want it, you want to achieve it. It is a. It is also a question of what is just... What will be done to you, right? Like, what yeah. is the environment going to impact on you? And of course, it's yeah. not... It's, of course, it's going to. I mean, there is there is some element of choice, which I think gets overemphasized uh, in circles. Uh, like, like you, you see people, you know, uh, in Reddit places like that, talking about like, oh, okay, I really want to teach my kids. Uh, like, now we're talking about like second gens raising the third gens, and the second gens are just disgusted with how things are going here. They want better for their children, a normal, very healthy instinct to have for your progeny. Uh, and then saying like, I don't want them to assimilate into American society. Like, mm, and they get, a, and this is. This is uh, this is treated usually as a great thing, as an unquestioned good for these children. They, you're raising your children to not assimilate into the society that they hold citizenship in. Um, like, hey, it's kind of charming that you think that this is even up to you. Like, it's not. Um, the forces your children will experience um, go far you're, beyond. You're, you're, you're kind of doing an end run because I think what you're kind of saying in a way or an inference of what you're saying is that even that thought is – assimilationist because i'm sure white people think the same thing right a lot of americans of that class probably think the same thing it's not like it's only chinese people who want to put their kids in mandarin immersion programs i mean the fucking ivanka trump does it right like um everyone wants their kids to be special and not just you know uh like a regular old american right everyone wants to be exceptional Uh, but in that in that sense that you're 
it is a very American thing. Yeah, a very, very American thing. To, to even think that you have a choice in the matter is pretty American, I would say. Uh, mm-hmm. And things like, like, oh, I don't want my children to like be exposed to, to X kind of media, Y kind of media. They're only going to eat like Chinese food or whatever, right? Um, and somehow this will protect, like, mm, it's not going to work the way you think, right? Uh, there is an element of choice, of course. Like with media, you show your children, the food, you, you know, the history you decide to teach them. There is a, always an element of agency and choice within that. But I'm talking about the range of choices that are even open to you uh, are already constrained in a very American way. And That's what I mean by this middle-aged horror, you know, like this dawning that not everything's really up to you and that uh, a lot of it, the the stuff that you thought you were like, you know, free to not be is exactly what you like. I don't know how to put this, but there isn't as many degrees of freedom that as you think, as I think we believe when we're younger. Yeah. Um, I mean, just this belief that you actually can be whatever you want to be, but you choose to right. be. That's, yeah. that's kind of an unthinkable thought. That's a very yeah. American notion of being actually. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I don't, I don't, I, I, I I don't know how to get around that, really. It's not saying like, oh, fuck it, just, you know, don't bother teaching your children Mandarin and, you know, only feed the McDonald's or what. This is not about that. This is just um, recognizing what is in your power and what isn't. And when we're talking about things like assimilation, to actually ha- try to have a full scope picture of what's going on. Mm. Mm. Uh, like, okay, so you choose to have your, like, on its, it's just doomed to fail on any front. Like, hey, let's say whatever you think of assimilation, okay, let's say you're successful in not raising your children to be assimilated in Americans. You, that's kind of a bad thing for your children, isn't it? Now we're talking about third generation people who have no connection to some motherland who are alienated from mainstream American society. That's bad. That's actually kind of a bad thing. You shouldn't be wanting this, really. Uh, what you're saying is uh, there is a a relative poverty that you see in mainstream American society that you would like to see addressed or supplemented with what you bring. Um, this isn't, this is not, uh, this is not anti-assimilationism. This is fighting on a, the contested space that is the American character. Yeah. That's a, I, we covered a lot of ground. I don't know. Usually, like, you know, my hope is like, oh, we'll have like a nice little packaged thought or central theme. But this is a more expansive thing. I'm, I, like, you and I have talked about this, but I, I don't know. The, thi- the difficulty in this is that I don't know if there's a, like, a, like a nucleating idea here. Like, there's nothing for me to put my feet to touch my toes to, to be like, oh, that's what's going on. I think this is a lot of blowing up mythologies and expansiveness, right? In terms of thinking about like what it is uh, or what situation we find ourselves in here as uh, Asian people in America post-1965 wave that um, I, 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 I often find myself like a little bit more disoriented than I feel settled after these kinds of conversations but i think maybe that's the point right they're kind of i think we cling to them because we don't want that that uh that um the word that comes to mind is liberation i that is such mm. a political but i i think we like as people we like having uh, some bounds right we mm-hmm. need a purpose and usually that purpose can be found in some kind of struggle some kind of uh some kind of pain 
uh, not the best things to forge an identity around, but they are real things and you can, they are potent symbols. Uh, I think we like having this narrative, this narrative of the self-sacrificing noble immigrant who were our forebears, who um, gave us the bounty of their gifts uh, through their labor and their hard work uh, to give us uh, this gift of being an American that we have, that and it's our responsibility to A, live up to, and then B, exceed. Um, the value of this right. gift that was given to us. Um, yeah. And I'm just saying, I don't think that's, uh, we don't need to, I, I think people like that. I think there is a comfort in having that, like it definitely sets, okay, then it, it justifies careerism. It justifies materialism. It justifies a lot of uh, pursuits that are in line with our animal instincts. That is for our comfort, for our pleasure, uh, et cetera. Right. Like if we bring it back mm -hmm. to Zia Noir, he managed to buy a, a very nice a, a home with his Pulitzer money in Manhattan Beach, one of the poshest, toniest uh, um, zip codes in Los Angeles. And he was able to use that immigrant narrative to call this uh, like colonizing the colonizer. Right. There is a there is a veneer of morality that can be ascribed to our our actions. Um, in America that I think is very comforting to a lot of us. Let's just be very frank about that. Um, but like what happens when we just lift the curtain on that? Like what if our parents just came here because the money was better here, right? They came for their own well-being before, and before, in a lot of cases, before their children were born. So it's hard to say it's for their children necessarily. Um, what if you were not bound by that guilt? What, how would you, how would you live, right? And likewise, yeah, if we see, I, yeah, I, if we see America as an extension, it has to be useful. There has to be something useful and helpful about giving up on that notion. Because I don't know. I mean, I think people always have the right to sort of mythologize their own past to some extent, right? Especially the immigrant. Like, yeah. you want to write, you want to have like a rose colored view of your own family background. I think we all have rose colored views of our own family background. Of course we do. That's called loving your family. That's called, you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. I, I don't know. Like, I guess what I'm saying is I don't, I don't think what we're trying to say is that there's an obligation for us to pierce the veil on the true intent of our parents for coming here or whatever, no. but more like yeah. that, 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 that the truth might actually be helpful to you in some way in terms of freeing yourself to, understand your role better, like to understand where you stand better versus being like, I must be the long suffering, you know, dilettante um, to honor my parents. You know, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to, cause it's probably not true. Right. Like, is yeah. Kind of what you're saying or. Yeah. And to extend that one step, I don't mean this to be a critique of uh, the first generation, actually. Um, I want to go one step back and talk about and extend that into like, if we see, America, the concept, right, as an extension of this parental, uh, the, the story of our creation, right? Uh, I'd like to remove whatever, uh, I'd like to lift the uh, model um, that seems to, that some of us seem to struggle under in not, uh, in not criticizing America, in not being able to speak uh, freely about how they feel about this place out of a sense of, well, America let us in, so we kind of owe her, uh, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, no, this is, this is an intentional, this is part of the suppressing myth, why this myth is actually a suppressant, right? We fulfill the terms, none of, we fulfill the terms uh, that we came under. There is no obligation. 
and it's only a muzzling when it's uh, when it's uh, pushback, right? Like I, people have the sense of like obligation, but to a very uh, extreme, um, to an extreme version of America. Like it don't, it's almost like, oh, you can't criticize it. Like, like the stuff that we an anticipate getting, you know, go back to China comments with, right? And we know what those are. Uh, there's just this muzzling effect to prevent that kind of accusation, to prevent that kind of comeback. Mm -hmm. um, and in total, and that's kind of speaks to what our conception of what America is and could be as well. That deserves some interrogation too. And it's not just simply a matter of um, just accepting whatever it is in your head, which may not even be true, uh, or just or just retreating from it. Like neither are real options. Both might be equally illusory. And they're just tired. They're just worn out, right? I think yeah. it, it. I just don't think that. Um, there was maybe a time, a time in an era where this was a very, maybe, ni nice, uh, and helpful thing for the second generation to believe about the first. Uh, but these days, especially like in today's America, you know, it's it, it, you really want to be like, you know, someone who's clinging to these like rom rom romanticized ideals of America. And to think that your parents are like a symbol of its redemption and, and it's, uh, you know, all that like, is that, I mean, maybe you do, maybe that's who you are. Okay. But I just think that that's a harder and more tiresome and limiting thing to believe these days. I, you know I, what I mean, yeah, it is. And uh, to constantly feel that, you know, the be, become like a Michael Luo and be like, you know, my parents came here because they hate communism and all this stuff. Really? That's what you want? You want to be like a Ted Cruz kind of guy? You want to be like a, you know what I mean? Like a Marco Rubio kind of guy? That's what you think the future of uh, the Asian American is? Is to become this, these reactionaries? I don't know. I'm like, I guess if that's who you are, that's who you are. But I don't think that, especially as racial minorities, I mean, is Marco Rubio really a racial minority? Or is he really like a white Hispanic? You know what I mean? I think he's a uh, letter. Yeah. I'm, he's a white Hispanic. So is Ted Cruz. These are white people, right? Yeah. That, that masquerade as Latinos as if that were a race. And uh, which, which the government real, you know, which is not, it's not, right? It's not like the other check marks. Mm -hmm. But I think with Asian Americans, it's a race. We are a racial category that, you know, we've got to think a little bit different here. I, I think that is something that is unique about the Asian American is that we're both an immigrant, we're both an immigrant group and a racial group, which okay. is not true of Latinos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are black well, Latinos, there are white Latinos, there are, what, what's, what, and then if you're not black or white, what are you, right? A lot of that is indigenous blood, right? Like it's, it's a very, they, they, the, the, the racial spectrum for Latinos is huge. It is, yeah. Uh, and That's for true. Asians, though, yes, we have a lot of diversity. And we always say this about ourselves, like, oh, there's so much diversity within Asian Americans. But one thing connects us. We are all not white. That, <laughs> and, right? That and we true. are all, you know, uh, it kind of blew my mind that there is such a thing as a black Asian. That's mm -hmm. true. There are black Asians. Uh, but for the most part, uh, black Asians do not uh, uh, represent, are, are not readily represented as far as i know among asian american immigrant groups mm -hmm. we're all asians you know so i think there is a uniqueness to asians in that we're racial we're a non-white racial group and we're immigrants 
because uh, I don't think that's true of any necessarily. Yeah, but what does that what does that distinction functionally mean, though, in terms of mm-hmm. practice? And at what point do we stop identifying as immigrants? At what point does it, do our do we are we no longer guests? When can we put our feet up on the coffee table? Uh, I think whenever we decide to. Yeah. Uh, because because it is a area of contested space. It is up to you. No one's ever going to tell you it's time. Because, fuck, I mean, how long have black people been here? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, when, I think... When, when, when do they get to put their feet... You know right. what I mean? Never. <laughs> until right. they just decide to do it. You know, I don't think anyone's ever going to tell them, oh, yeah, go ahead, it's, it's really end now. Oh, yeah, yeah, so I think this is why it's backwards. The whole uh, representation matters uh, as a political... Um, as a politically viable movement. It doesn't start. Um, and this is why slogans like, you know, Black Lives Matter is so inert. Because it always depends on getting some signal from some collective, uh, I imagine everyone views it as a white, um, a white person giving us the signal that finally we fully belong. We are in the house. We own the house. Uh, put your feet up on the cuff. And that's never going to happen. Right. Um, in fact, that's not how they did it either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I see Scarface as an immigrant movie. I enjoyed the hell out of it. <laughs> um, so in terms of like, I should what, rewatch it. No, you should. I mean, like, just from the symbol of, uh, uh, just, uh, and I, it's so incredible to, to watch this happen. It's so consistent in these movies about, uh, like, it's it's men on the on the fringes, right, uh, moving mm-hmm. up into society, gaining legitimacy. Um, this, to me, I feel like the symbol of that is the the wasp blonde that they always go after. Oh, the uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer. The Michelle Pfeiffer, and like yeah. her, her. Well, that her was the part- order that you know that always struck me in that movie because it was like in America, it's like first you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the woman. I was like, damn, the woman came last. <laughs> I mean, but that's kind of and then you see that arc, right? She, that was I the mean, ultimate. Was a Michelle Pfeiffer? That was what it was all for. I mean, but it's it's like this. It's like the capstone, like the symbol that you finally have made it. Right, mm. that she has yeah. that she has granted you legitimacy by you know agreeing to marry you, or you've won her in conquest. And he literally did win her in conquest. She was the wife of his uh, boss and rival that he killed. Uh, this movie's been out since for like forty years, so I'm not I'm not bothering the spoiler alert or nothing. Um, but that's the progress. Like she was the prize for him coming mm. up in the world. Um, this yeah. beautiful, icy, rich. Uh, cold blonde woman who's just the pinnacle of everything, like materially valuable to him. Uh, and what's hilarious, he actually gets it, right? He achieves that. And then, but that's at the halfway mark of the movie. And the next half is how it's all been a sham from the very, it's all been a sham. And I lose That's Kay Adams. That's Diane yeah. Keaton in uh, The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer, I mean, it shows there's a hilarious part. Uh, after he wins her, like he literally just like picks, like he just grabs her out of bed, like you're mine now, bitch, come with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she just it doesn't even show like a wedding scene. It's just like her like being woken up in the middle of the night and like all of a sudden like okay she's got to like move houses now. Um, <laughs> and then it shows, like she just like it, and then the next the next half is showing how their marriage like is shit. Uh, and she just this line is so great. Like she just turns around, gives this gaudy like Caligula like bath house basically yeah and, i remember this and they're fighting and she just turns around like you know what your problem is you're an immigrant spick excuse the, yeah. 
the slur. But it's like, oh, damn, she went there. Holy shit. Uh, and she's just like tearing him down, like all his aspirations and pretenses. It's like, I can see right through you. You're just a, you're just a nobody who just came up the ranks. And I'm right. like, I'm like, here I fucking am dealing with you now. And then he's just like, yeah, fuck you. Um, and like, mm-hmm. did you, and you remember the scene when it all, like her last scene in this movie. Um, when they had that big meltdown at a big posh restaurant. Oh yeah. And it's it, to me, it's like, oh shit, this is uh, this is kind of uh, this, this this is kind of laying bare a lot of uh, what like how people uh, people who have come to buy into the myth of America, how they see it unraveling. Mm-hmm. He just basically like just takes just tears her down. He's like, I yeah. can't even get a child out of her. She's so po- mm-hmm. she's so polluted and empty. Her pussy's so polluted. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, one. yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like, well, damn. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> is that assimilationism? Is that is that what we're all striving for? Is is that it? Um, <laughs> and I credit Eliza. I didn't know the backstory of the movie, but I mean, Oliver Stone wrote the screenplay. Um, and this was a, he was uh, he was taking a very uh, harsh look at uh, at the failures of America through that uh through that movie it was a very yeah. intentional thing um it's yeah. one of the few that actually calls out you know government um you know the behind the scenes machinations behind the manipulation of the drug trade etc before it's just all you know good guy feds versus bad guy brown cartel right and that's what it quickly devolved back into this is one of the few movies that actually tries to expose how how deeply interconnected this all was uh, it's a great, it's a, it's a great watch as an, I see this as peak immigrant movie. Yeah. I've, I'm, I'm definitely going to rewatch it now that we talked about it. Yeah. Um, all right. We should wrap it up. Uh, we're at two hours. Um, I don't know if you have any final thoughts. I don't really have any, uh, I just thought that was like a good rambling talk about shit. And we haven't done that in a while. It was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thoughts are just be free. Like, look, it's all it's all coming down anyway. That's yeah. It is very liberating, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. It should feel. Diana like said it. that, and I agree with her. And I think a lot of us, uh, or if, I, I think that might be a slightly common uh, thread among us that we that we um, actually find all of this uh, myth destruction quite liberating mm-hmm. in a way. You know, because I think. That's really what is going. I mean, of all the things that are really crumbling, one of it is the American mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just falling around all around us, mm-hmm. and, I, and I find that wonderful and very freeing because the American mythologizing is—it's uh, a fucking burden. It, it it is. It's a real burden. So, yeah. All right. Um, thanks for listening. If you made it this far, you must really enjoy hearing us ramble and talk. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be a bonus. So thanks for your support uh, on the Patreon. We've been uh, really yeah, uh, shout out, yeah, real shout out to our new patrons. I'm I'm really touched, honestly. Uh, yeah. When we when when you know lockdown started, when it looked like you know the economy was swirling, going to swirl the drain. I mean, not that that's not going to happen, isn't happening, and won't be continuing to accelerate. Um, like I was fully expecting like our patrons to just like go uh, and understandably like if you if uh i mean if times get tough like obviously a podcast isn't the first thing you should be supporting obviously but it's been really touching to see people come out to support uh to support what, what we're doing it means a lot 
Um, so hopefully we can do something to acknowledge that a little bit more going forward. Uh, but just for now, I think I, I'm just personally very, uh, very moved that people would think that this project is worth uh, their support. You're moved. Wow. I am. I am. Uh, that's a that's a great thing to hear. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so am I. again, uh, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much to all to all of you guys. And of course, you know, typical to our style, we tack this onto the end of a two and a half hour uh, podcast. So for truly well, only the only yeah only someone that's like really into it could make it this far. Yeah. No, so <laughs> for those for those three of you who are still clinging on, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is surprising that we have these conversations and people actually want to listen. I never, it was the, it was the experiment. That was the going thesis of why we did plan A was to say, we're having these conversations already. You know, it's funny because uh, Andre Domisen, they just started up their Patreon platform, uh, Resistance NWA. And uh, they're, they have a mission statement, kind of like we had a mission statement when we came out in 2016, was it? And uh, it was 2017. And we, but they said, you know, we were just a group of extremely online people that found each other and we just were having all these conversations about race and politics and, and America. And every time they would have finished the conversation, they'd be like, why didn't we record it and just share it? Because mm-hmm. now it's just gone. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And we would do shit like you and I would just talk on the phone like this for fun. Yeah. <laughs> and then we we're like, you know what? We should just record it and put it out there. Cause like, what is the point? Because after I hang up the phone, it's just gone. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, I thought that was really interesting that they said it exactly the same way, mm-hmm. um, in terms of how they thought around, around to getting, um, their, their podcast up and everything. So it's over. Um, well, I guess I'll put a link in the show notes over to their, to their, uh, pod, yeah. to their website and stuff. And please uh, go check them out. They are doing fantastic work. Uh, yeah. we'll put, uh, we'll put a link since we've, we talked. We mentioned them a few times, so we might as well. Yeah. And Mtume, Mtume, and Trevor. Trevor, I think, was a guest on their early guest, and Mtume mm-hmm. is a regular contributor to it. So yeah. it's really cool. It's really it's... cool to see it all come together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So. Um, all right. So we will uh, reconvene. All right, there you go. Next time. Till next time. Bye.